Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. A show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the wonderful world of education. This time around, I spoke to Michael Pershing. Now, Michael may well be a name that's not overly familiar with, with UK listeners in particular, but that needs to change. Michael is a teacher of mathematics in New York City. Yes, we are going global with this episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast, although budget restrictions have meant that I still recorded my end of the conversation in the city that always sleeps, otherwise known as Blackburn. Michael is one of my all-time favourite bloggers. He's the creator of the wonderful Rational Expressions, Math Mistakes and Teaching with Problems. I am always inspired and challenged by Michael's writing and I've wanted to get him on the show for absolutely ages and I'm absolutely delighted to report that it was well worth the wait. This is an absolute belter of an episode. So, in a wide-ranging, challenging and fascinating conversation, Michael and I discussed the following things and plenty more besides. Just why is changing schools so hard? And what role does the expectation of students play? And then for the remainder of the first half of the conversation, after successfully overcoming our mutual language barrier, Michael describes his process for planning a sequence of lessons on subtraction, and it is fascinating stuff. But we're just getting warmed up then, because then comes the big bombshell. What do Michael's example problem pairs look like? Now, spoiler alert, they are different to mine, which has got my head spinning. Then, how soon into the process of introducing a concept would Michael include an incorrect example? How does Michael provide whole class feedback? And Michael argues that many problem-solving strategies have descriptive, but not prescriptive, validity. What exactly does he mean by this? Now, I'm going to make a big claim here, and I know I'm always doing these, but trust me on this one. I think the second half of this conversation, when we really dive into the nature and presentation of worked examples, is one of my favourites of all time. I'll reflect on this and much more besides in my takeaway at the end of the episode, but needless to say, it's got me thinking really, really hard about my own approach. Just before we dig into the interview, the usual plugs. My book, How I Wish I'd Taught Maths, is still available from all good and all evil bookshops. And if you're listening in the US, then there's a fancy US version of it with a sparkly cover and a wonderful brand new foreword by Dylan William. Um, if you wish to sponsor an episode of this podcast, then drop me an email at mrbartomaths at gmail.com. There's a link to that in the show notes. Uh, you can now also support this podcast via Patreon and sign up to buy me a Mellow Birds coffee a month. Details of this are also in the show notes or via patreon.com forward slash Maths. And finally, I am hosting a brand new series of podcasts because, of course, one series of podcasts isn't enough for anybody called Inside Exams. And in this series, I go behind the scenes of an exam board asking the questions you want answering. Just search for Inside Exams wherever you get your podcasts from or follow the links in the show notes. Wow, it's a busy set of show notes these days. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Michael Pershing. 
I really hope you know uh, you enjoy this one. I have no doubt. I know you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Michael. So we start as we always do on the podcast with your maths speed dating questions. So question number one, what is your favorite number and why? Uh, my my favorite number, I'll tell you, is uh, uh, I'll tell you what I told some of my young students a couple weeks ago, uh, which is that my favorite number is a number called Michael's number. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's represented with the letter M. So, so M stands for Michael's number. And this is a real number, is it? It is. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but, oh. but it is, in fact, my favorite number. Wow. And, uh, yeah. And, but that's it. You're just so, going to, you're, so, you're going to so, tease it, us with this. No more information. Well, yeah, yeah. You know, cause I, I told these kids that there was such a thing as Graham's number. Yes. And and they immediately started naming numbers. These are nine year olds, and they they immediately started naming numbers after themselves. Uh, so so I said, you know, I'm going to have a number also. It's going to be Michael's number. Uh, and I and and all week, uh, uh, the kids were yelling at me that they wanted to know what Michael's number was, and I said no. But but it was nice because because uh, because we did all sorts of things with Michael's number, like uh, you know if you. Uh, 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 Add Michael's number and then subtract it. It doesn't do anything at all. So, uh, so we were able to do a little bit of, of algebra with Michael's number, which is a number that I will not tell you what it is. But that is my favorite number. I like it. It might be one of my favorites now already, Michael. Yeah. I, I like that. That's a cracking answer. Uh, well, well, question. I mean, any chance to lie to your students is <laughs> is a pleasure, and to tease them is a double pleasure. So, and and the triple pleasure if you bring in a bit of algebra and generalization in there. So that's three for the price of one there. I, I like that. Um, that's right. Well, question number two, and I've got to be careful with the wording of this, I guess. And um, what was your favorite topic? Oh, uh, do I have to say in math here? Could you take offense if I put that that S on the end? Yes. Well, will I say what was your favorite no. topic? In, in math it, as a student or are you okay with maths it's no please say math it's your <laughs> podcast just because i live in new york doesn't mean that that we have to accommodate uh me for my failures um <laughs> for my for, yeah oh anyway so my favorite topic um you know i remember proofs is that what you call it there do you call it proof yeah 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 i don't know Okay, good. I'm just gonna start adding S's to, to words just in case. <laughs> um, so I, I remember. It's not that I was bad at math in school, um, but there were certain other things that came more naturally to me. I know that I remember writing and 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 literary analysis, feeling like, oh, you know, I can just kind of do this. Uh, and and algebra was fine, but 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 proofs uh, that which I uh, like geometry proofs, like mm. two columns statements and reasons that's that's how i was introduced to it and i remember that feeling natural to me like oh wow i can just do this i can i i can just see how it goes uh and i remember that being natural i don't know if that makes it my favorite um but it was certainly in my school years you know when i got to university linear algebra was was the class that was really my favorite and and especially like spaces mathematical spaces i love that idea can I just check, Michael? Because um, when you say um, about proofs, did you say two column? What, what's what's that? Yeah, that's what we call it in the United States. Well, what what is, what is it? Yeah. Well, 
I, I don't. I'll tell you what we do in some places in America, and and you'll tell me, you know, what the rest of the world does. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so when I was in school, and when I teach geometry now, there's the, these textbooks call it two column proofs, where the left column is statements, and the right column are the reasons behind them, the justification for why each statement would be true. So you know, your first statement might be. Uh, line segment AB is congruent to line segment CD, and your reason might be given. You know, ah. brilliant, brilliant things like that. You know. Oh, so it's kind of it's a way of setting out proofs, is it? Yeah, yeah. I see two column. I, think, I like that. I know. I, I mean, they're fine. A lot of people don't like it, and and in America, less and less. Uh, uh, Emphasis, I don't know what to call it, but people are, there's less of that stuff now. There's less of that format for proofs. It's not as much of a part of high school geometry. It's it's kind of on its way out of focus a little bit. Got it. Fantastic. Superb. And I'm sure throughout this conversation, there'll be a few more of these little quirks that, that, that fly up there. And this is good because we're, we're going global with the podcast, Michael. So this is great. We're breaking down these transatlantic barriers here with, with, with every sentence we speak. So this is perfect. Yes. <laughs> um, well, go yeah. on. <laughs> No, 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 no. Uh, uh, I just want to say hello, world. Uh, it, it's it's wonderful to to get to know you from from cloistered New York City. <laughs> Fantastic. And final speed dating question for you, Michael. What job would you like to do if you weren't involved in education? I don't know. Writer would be nice, I guess. But but then I think about like the actual life of being a full time writer and and. I don't know. I was talking to a friend who's a who's a writer, and he's like, "Oh, you know, you're inside most of the time." And I, I think I do need some human interaction in my daily life. So, I think my dream job would be part time uh, teacher, like yes. just my my current job, but not working as much. Is it is it the same in the U.S. as it is over here, where kind of part time teacher, so say you work three days a week, you end up essentially doing five days a week because the job kind of creeps itself into your, into your days off, or is it? It can it be sustainable to be be a part time teacher in the U.S.? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Also in the U.S., you know, you uh, you get your health care usually through your employer, and so uh, usually only full time employees. Ah. get healthcare so so when you go part-time things get very complicated got it got it fantastic okay michael well well let me ask you this then can you talk us through your career to date so where, where did your kind of mathematical journey all begin and, and how did you get to where you are now yeah sure so in college i studied philosophy uh i only came to math well i i, I took calculus my first semester of university and uh, uh got scared away because i i i it wasn't that I did so poorly as much as I felt like I had no control over my own learning. I felt I felt uh, no ability to understand things that I didn't understand. And I felt kind of at the mercy of of luck and chance. Uh, so I took a break and uh, I ended up studying philosophy. And that was wonderful. And, and I was studying the kind of philosophy that kind of edged into math sometimes, maths sometimes. <laughs> I was studying the kinds of philosophies that edged into maths sometimes. And uh, that was logic. That was philosophy of math. That was philosophy of language also. And then I said, you know, I could try this again. I've been studying some pretty abstract stuff. So so I ended up focusing, what do you call it there? Here we call it majoring. Uh, I majored yeah. in philosophy. Yeah, sure, sure. I'm Sure, I minored in, in maths. And uh, 
Uh, I'm going to keep doing that. It's fun. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> no, I love it. Is that all right? It's perfect. It's, okay, good. Okay. Okay, so um, – and then uh, uh, it turns out that when you finish school, you need a job. And that was something I hadn't really thought about at all, uh, really at all. I just kind of assumed that I'd figure it out when I came time to figure it out. And it was my last year of university, and I started applying to things. And it turns out that if you have no experience in anything, uh, people won't hire you. <laughs> uh, there's something – here called Teach for America that was very popular, uh, more popular 10 years ago than it is now. And I had a friend who was a recruiter for Teach for America. So she was someone who was going to be headed towards Teach for America, but she also was trying to uh, get other students to, uh, to sign up to teach in a poor urban school for two years, because uh, that's what the Teach for America mm. fellowship is. Yes. And, and I wanted none of that. Uh, there were so many parts of that that scared me away. Uh, the first is that the kind of, uh, I don't know, the kind of elitist vibe wasn't my, wasn't my speed. Because uh, cause Teach for America had a kind of like, I don't know, the best of the best sort of vibe. And, and that's, for whatever weird psychological reason, is very unattractive to me. Uh that was thing number one. Thing number two was I did not want to sign up to teach for two years. That uh, that was scary. The idea that I would commit, and I and I, I don't like breaking commitments, so that was scary. Uh, and the idea that that uh, I'd be put in a difficult school was scary. So I didn't want to do that, and so I said no when she asked me if I wanted to join Teach for America. And then a couple weeks later, she said, "Well, someone emailed me uh, with a teaching job." Do you want to apply to it? It's at a private school, uh, an independent school. What do you call it there? Yeah, both both of those. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wonderful. But isn't – okay, wait, brief aside. Is private school – okay, because I was visiting London uh, uh, with my wife this past summer. We ditched our kids for two days for a quick vacation, <laughs> and it seemed like private school could mean something else. Is that true? No, I, I do, to be honest with you, it does get a little bit complicated because we have kind of state schools, grammar schools, private schools and independent schools. Um, both okay. private and, and, and independent kind of get lumped together in, in the fact that they tend to be fee paying um, schools with some kind of scholarships available. But um, yeah, they're, they're certainly kind of outside of the state sector, if, if that makes sense. Uh, OK, that does make sense. Anyway, so so this was that kind of school, the one where people paid it go yes and uh and that was much more attractive to me uh because there was no two-year commitment and it was not this weird are you tough enough to be a teacher america fellow <laughs> kind of vibe and um and so i said sure i don't have any other opportunities i've been rejected from my what, what, what was it a medical ethics fellowship i've been rejected from i wanted to be i wanted to go work at a non-profit uh, but it turns out you had to compete to do that also <laughs> and beat out other people for the chance to help people, which <laughs> was, again, not really what I was best at. Um, and so I went and I applied. And then looking back, once once it was time to plan a lesson because they invited me to, to go teach a lesson, I said, oh, right. I know how to do all of this because I've been wor working in, in, in summer camps and teaching in summer programs and tutoring. I kind of went like, oh, right. This is exactly the thing I am qualified to do. <laughs> and, and so that was easy. I got, I, I, I applied. I ended up not taking, I got an offer at that school. I applied somewhere else. I got a job there. I moved to New York City. Uh, I taught at a high school 
for three years. That high school, I mean, if you're listening, anybody from that high school, I did not enjoy working there. <laughs> uh, I worked there for three years, uh, which was there were there were wonderful things about it, and um, it's in the neighborhood that I live in now. And the students I had were wonderful. Uh, it was a high school, a secondary school, uh, but I eventually left because I was finding the administration difficult to work with. And um, I moved to another school, and that is where I've spent the last six years, and I'm very happy there. And that's my career. And what, what's your position, Michael? Are you teacher of maths, or do you have a position of responsibility within your current school? No, no responsibilities. Uh, uh, just being a math teacher. So um, so I teach young kids and also older kids. Um, we're going to have to do a little bit of translation here, because I don't know exactly how old all my children are. I think... Uh, I, so I teach third graders, fourth graders, eighth graders, and ninth graders, okay. which means I teach, I think, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 14-year-olds, and 15-year-olds, and I teach the older children algebra one and geometry, and I teach the younger children you know, the things that they need to know, like multiplying or adding or what a triangle is. I got it. And this, I'll tell you what, this is perfect, this, Michael, because this is a question I've always wanted to ask. And I know I know, I could have looked this up, but I, I thought you, you're the perfect person to ask here. You know, when you say Let's do it. <laughs> when you say you teach a course like Algebra 1 to a class, does that mean that they have a, another teacher who'll teach them another aspect of, of maths? They don't just like over here. They don't just have one math teacher for a given year in, in secondary school. Do they have several teachers who each teach a different course? Is, is that right? No, that no, we... If my students and and most American students, the vast majority of them, take one maths course. There, I, I nailed almost said it. I slipped maths <laughs> one maths course uh, a year. And oh, it's just right. that In our wisdom, we've decided to take all the geometry that kids will learn in secondary school and put it in one course, and then put all the algebra one that a student will take and put it in the algebra one course. It's important to keep your algebra one and your algebra two separate. That's that's the American <laughs> insight. No one. Yeah, it's just an unnatural thing to to have algebra one and algebra two mixed up. Wow. So, and again, I assume that other areas of mathematics kind of sneak their way into the, the geometry course. So, would a bit of algebra leak its way in there, and a bit of statistics, or is it is it just pure geometry for for an entire twelve months? No. Well, the the, the trend in America is to al- make algebra dominate everything. So ah. so so geometry is we have uh, for the last couple. Okay, here's something very confusing. You have SATs and we have SATs. Do you call them SATs or do you call them SATs? So, yeah, we, we just have SATs at the end of year six or the end of primary school, which I think will be your grade five, I think. Yeah, whatever. We So SATs are, are everybody, a, a lot of students, to get into college, they take the SATs. It's not a, it's not a, it's not run by the country. It's not right. the United, it's not the government. It's a, it's a, it's the college board. So that dominates, uh, uh, a lot of college preparation stuff. And, and, and so they've made it, their test very algebra heavy. And the other thing is that uh, we have a set of state standards that most of the country has adopted. And that's also much more algebra heavy. Uh, and, and so the geometry courses are more algebra heavy than they used to be, as we've kind of been across the country converging on these standards. So um, there's a trend towards... Yeah, but but there, you're right that there's uh, a little bit of statistics, a little bit of geometry in some of these other courses. But but I think algebra is, is 
you know, starting to dominate a little bit, and, even more. And, and last kind of potentially daft question for now, but there'll be, there'll be plenty more throughout this conversation, Michael. Um, is it is it prescribed the order that these courses need to be sat? So does every, for example, every 13-year-old take geometry one in that in that particular age group and then followed by algebra one the next year? Or do, do schools have a choice over which order these courses are taken? Uh, not, well, some schools... There, there is some choice, but but by far the dominant thing to do is algebra one, geometry, algebra two. Uh, there is some choice. There's um, there's there's ways to to mix them up into courses where all the things are jumbled and it's not algebra one, but it's you know some slice of everything. Uh, uh, so you can make that choice. Got it. Got it. Absolutely fascinating. Well, well, let, let me ask you this, Michael. This is my favorite question to ask my podcast guests, and this is about a favorite failure. So I wonder if you could think back to a lesson that you've taught that, that didn't exactly go according to plan. And crucially, what, what, what did you learn from the experience? Sure. Um, so so I mentioned that I that I have taught at two schools. Um, the first school that I taught at was a high school. Uh, I taught there for three years. And then I, I, the school that I'm at now, I've been at for six years. Right when I started teaching at this new school, um, one of the courses I taught was a secondary school course uh, where we were studying geometry. And I had this idea uh, that came from thinking, overthinking things a little bit, uh, which was that proof should really emerge from argument and explanation. That proof, uh, to really understand proof, to really understand mathematical proof, uh, it really had to be kind of a formalization of argument and explanation. That students needed to be put in a position to argue and explain things, and then proof would make a lot more sense. Okay, sounds good. I like it so far. Yeah, it sounded okay. So, so, so I tried very hard to get kids to argue and to debate and to uh, be forced to clarify things uh about shapes that, that was the plan the plan was the first thing i'd do step one of this year would be to get kids arguing about shapes and so i drove everybody crazy <laughs> for a couple of weeks with extraordinarily ambiguous questions about shapes highly debatable vague questions so i what i would do is i i'd grab uh, a shape and it'd be like a weird looking shape not like a square mm. or a, a trapezium See what I did there? Yeah, very uh, nice. Uh, very uh, nice. Thank you. <laughs> uh, uh, I've spent a lot of time on Enrich. Uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, so um, uh, so I show like a weird looking shape, a very strange non, you know, a, a hexagon that that had all right angles or something like that, or not all. It depends how you whatever. Anyway, sure. so uh, a strange looking shape, and I'd say what makes this special? Uh, uh, what should, could we name this shape? What's the category that we should name this type of shape? What's the definition for this type of shape? And kids would say things like, oh, it kind of looks boxy. So let's name it the boxy. What other shapes are boxy? Uh, 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 you know, that's how it went. Uh, uh, and by the way, so this was a failure. And, um, <laughs> and, and it's not – it's a lesson that I've actually since done with younger students. And it works – I mean, it has worked with my younger students quite well. Uh, it's been great. And uh, part of that is because I learned 
that even when, you know, those moments when you want to do loosey-goosey, ambiguous things uh, need to be balanced with some extraordinarily uh, rigorous, uh, clear things. So I've learned to, to, to use Venn diagrams more systematically to, to get at some of the, the things like, you know, put one shape's definition on one side of the Venn diagram and put another shape's definition on the other side to try to, to, to make sure that, that I'm going to, you know, that's part of what made it work with the younger kids uh, was that I understood that a little bit of rigor needed to be applied uh, to balance out the kind of vagueness and ambiguity. But part of it is that uh, uh, it was just a bad idea. <laughs> it was just a bad idea. It was, and it, it was a bad idea not because it's a terrible – there's nothing intrinsically bad about that kind of mathematical activity. It just – there was a lot of reasons why you know, that might be a really good idea with younger students who are uh, – who would be excited for the opportunity to kind of whimsically define shapes – uh, and play with the properties and uh, there's another reason why that would be not a great idea to uh, to launch a geometry class with, with secondary students uh, who are wondering who is this new teacher <laughs> and will they and will this teacher successfully teach me the things that I need to know so that I don't have a bad time this year and that I learn all the things that I need to know for the rest of my secondary career that's fascinating that michael so so you, you consider it a failure for, for kind of two reasons one essentially the way it set the tone um for the year it was the first experience that the kids had of you but but also would it be fair to say that i, I mean correct me if i'm wrong here, i don't want to put words in your mouth and this may be some um kind of line of conversation we get to further on in the interview but is that the kind of interview that works better sorry the kind of um lesson or activity that that works better if students have some kind of underlying knowledge of the principles involved so so students can apply knowledge that they have about the properties of shapes and names of shapes to start to then categorize and rename these these strange shapes that, that, that they've got uh, that you show them as opposed to this is at the start of the course they, they've nothing to kind of cling on and latch on to so it, it, it becomes not as worthwhile an activity. Does that make any sense at all? It does. However, uh, it's not like my nine-year-olds who have done this activity yes. since then, right? So for them, what makes it exciting is it's a chance to – so it's, it's, it's also messy, right? I mean, mm. it's not – yes, we will get to this later, I hope, uh, talking about what expertise is. Uh, it, it, it's not that you need a certain level of – objective knowledge before there's not some predefined bit of, of knowledge that you need before an activity like this will be fun because my younger students have a great deal of fun with it. Uh, I think what they get out of it is they get a chance, you know, for them, the notion of angle and, and, and degrees measure, uh, the language of acute and obtuse and right is, is new and they are excited to apply that to shape. Mm. Uh, so you're right that, you know, that that an activity like that where you do not have prior knowledge that does not become fun but it is fun for younger kids because they do have prior knowledge that is relevant for that task the older kids have prior knowledge too but it's kind of the moment when they would be excited to use that prior knowledge for this particular activity has passed you nice. know maybe by five years that's maybe by, so so 
so this is all a quite messy. Expertise is is is, and what makes an activity fun or engaging and useful or not are, it's it's uh, it's not something that is just a matter of uh, of prior knowledge. It's it's a little bit messier. That's fascinating, that. And as you say, this this will be a recurring theme then th- throughout this conversation, Michael. Now, th- thanks for that. Um, as I say, I love hearing about lessons that they didn't go according to plan and, and, and the lessons we learned. That, that's super. Well, let, let's turn from that to, to actually... By the way, those kids hated me <laughs> all year. I, I had a great time with every other group, but those kids hated me. And I think it's because of that lesson. They, they really did not care for me at all. And I saw them in the halls for the next three years, and, they, and no one said hi to me. Well, if you, if you could go back, what what would have the first what would the first lesson have looked like, Michael? If you, if you weren't doing that activity? Oh well, I mean, I, I you know I have a different version of the geometry course now. Six years later, it's um I I start with diagrams, uh that uh that have various things that uh oh how do I start? Wait, great question. This is. How do I start? I was so confident that I could tell you, and now I'm thinking I've got no idea. Um, uh, I start with angle diagrams. That's right. I start with angles, uh, uh, going into angles and circles. This is uh, um, so so, and I learned this from Henry Pichotto, who's an American teacher. Uh, he's retired now, but he was a classroom teacher and a curriculum writer. He's got uh, a book called Geometry Labs, and uh, I, I've been very influenced by that. It's a great resource for anybody who teaches any geometry. And one thing that he taught me was that kids can learn uh, the inscribed angle theorem in circles very early in the year. And it's a great chance to uh, developing that and heading towards that topic. is uh, it's it, it connects, you know, it's not loosey-goosey, which is, <laughs> oh, that's such an American way of saying it. I like that. it, what's, oh, what's I like a, it. I'm sorry. I like loosey-goosey. Uh, we, we go wishy-washy, maybe, something like that. But I, I, I say wishy-washy. Yeah, though, yeah. So it's not wishy-washy. It's not open-ended. It's it's what kids expect, uh, and it builds knowledge right away. But it doesn't um, get you stuck. Some of these courses, uh, and some people who teach geometry in the United States, uh, start with a long time of boring lead-up before you can do any... It's like, well, first you have to learn, I don't know, the angle addition theorem and the segment mm. addition theorem, where you're kind of like having a whole lesson that's all about how you, you know, if two plus five is seven, essentially. So <laughs> uh, so I, I love starting with angles and angle proofs and uh, angles and circles. It's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because this that, that first lesson with a class, it, it's so important, isn't it? Because as you say, if it, if it doesn't go to plan, it can take kids a long time to, to get over it, and particularly if they, they don't know you as a teacher. And it, it's you want it to be fun, but you also want the kids to learn something. You want to set the tone of, of what the rest of the year is going to be. Because I know in the past, I've, I've kind of started with a fun game, and the kids are like, oh, this guy's going to be great. And then obviously lesson two, then I've actually got to start. start Big letdown. Yeah, I've got to actually start teaching them a bit of maths at some point. So it's it's hard, isn't it, to strike that balance between it being fun and engaging, but also it's setting the tone for for the fact that the kids are going to have to work hard and and think hard in in these lessons. That first lesson is important, isn't it, Michael? It is. But you, uh, the thing, one thing about that failed lesson is um, it's that first lesson. I think. Uh, Again, it's complicated because you have to know the, what the kids are expecting from mm-hmm. the school, right? You want to, uh, if you want to try to manage those expectations correctly, uh, 
you need a baseline understanding of, of, you know, what do the kids, what are they worried about when they walk into a classroom? You know, if, if the kids are worried about, if, if, uh, so in the first school that I taught at, I think kids were worried about, will this person be able to engage me? Mm. Um, and I know that engagement has, and some in, in, uh, edu Twitter, Twitter, you know, uh, it's not, it's, it's not always thought to be, you know, the primary concern that kids have. Sure. But I really do think that in my first school, it was true that these, it was an all boys school. Uh, it was a religious school where they had an extraordinarily long day. They would, they were at school from seven thirty to like six at night. My last wow. period. Yeah. And, and, and the math class, math classes were always in late in the afternoon. I would start my teaching day at one o'clock, I think. And I teach five periods between one o'clock and six o'clock. In <laughs> wow. And so, yeah, it was a weird place, right? So, uh, yeah, it was a religious Jewish school, actually, not unlike the one that I went to myself, uh, when I was a student. So I knew I, it wasn't a shock to me. Uh, but in that environment, I think that there, there is some validity to the idea that kids came in, in some of those classes wondering, uh, you know, is this person going to be able to hold my attention and my classmates' attention? Yes. Um, and at the school that I moved to, I kind of brought those assumptions with me in that first year when actually the kids were much more worried about, I found, will this person, can I trust that this person will, will actually teach me useful knowledge? Yes. And so, uh, you know, the longer, I think that's a missing variable in these discussions, the, the, the school itself and, 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 and the culture of the school is, is such a crucial bit of knowledge for teaching. Do you know what? It's, it's really interesting you say that. Um, I, I moved schools. So I, I, I've taught in two schools for, for the vast majority of my year. First school for maybe five or six years and then my current school for seven or eight years. And I remember when I moved to my and my I still call it my new school but I've, I've been there like right. seven, seven or eight years but when I when I moved I remember one of my first lessons was an absolute shocker it was with a, a year 10 class and um, so that would be your grade nine um, I think and I went in there thinking okay I've got to engage them I've got I've got to got to make them enjoy maths and so on but I'll tell you the thing that they wanted to know and the only thing they were bothered about was was I going to stick around as a teacher because they'd had I think they'd had 13 maths teachers in in, in like oh, wow. four or four years or some, something like that oh, wow. um, and but I, I had no way of knowing that 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 was that was what they were looking for from me because they, they'd probably have ton, mm. tons of jokers in there who'd, who'd you know turn it on for two or three lessons and then then they'd be out the door so I think it's you're, you're absolutely right Michael the expect the expectations that the kids have is a crucial thing but it's, it's just hard to know it isn't it until till you're in, kind of in the firing line if that makes sense that, of course, and I think that's that's something that I wish I had known when I was younger. That that there's immense uh, benefits to just being around, yes. to just staying. I, I thought like you know my career would be yeah spend a couple years here, a couple years there, keep things interesting. That that was such a mistake in in because it misunderstands what quality teaching is. You know, being sticking around is part of quality teaching. Mm, I think. That- that's interesting. Do you want to just just expand on that a little bit? Because I guess the counter argument, yeah. I guess the counter argument would be you become a better teacher by exposing yourself to different environments, different challenges, and so on. So, what what would the argument for for sticking around be? 
Well, nobody cares how good of a teacher you are in that second sense, I'd argue. You know, so so you see more context, right? You, you've tested yourself mm. in other environments. Uh, there's maybe some sense in which your skills are are more flexible. You know what I mean? Mm, yes, like, like, yes. Okay. If, so maybe if I uh, – maybe there's Michael into – there's universe A, Michael, and then there's universe B, Michael. And Universe B, Michael, instead of sticking around in the same schools for however many years, has has uh, gone to twice as many schools. So I've taught at two schools, and, and Universe B, Michael, has taught at four schools. Mm. And Universe B, Michael, has gone to those four schools, and each of those schools is a very different environment. And as a result, uh, Universe B's, Michael's skills are, are stronger, right? If you drop Universe A, Michael, and Universe B, Michael into... Uh, and here's where the philosophy really comes in handy, right? Because because uh, I, I I encountered so many multiverse arguments in philosophy of language. You don't think you think a lot of the philosophy of language is going to be like you know pretty clear down to earth thing, and then suddenly has like you know multi multiverse semantics or something like that. Anyway, possible world semantics. Anywho, um, so yeah, so may, maybe Universe B Michael has some kind of advantage when the, when 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 he goes to a new school yes. compared to you know actually me. But who cares, you know? Uh, uh, that's 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 true, but what about? I mean, why would we value that as opposed to Universe A, Michael, who is sticking around in school, has deepened relationships, and knows who to talk to. Yes. Uh, uh, when there's an issue, and kids know him because I taught kids in when they were nine, yes. where I'm now teaching that they're. 16 or 15 or 15 i forget how old the kids are uh so so i would be stronger i think there's a yeah there's a case to be made that i'd be better tested i my metal has would have been tested if i could be in more different environments but but that's not what teaching is you know teaching is not you don't teach at a different school every day you teach at the same school uh uh and 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 quality teaching is teaching in that environment environment not in some kind of other environment uh it's it's not like being a football player yes uh, where you're facing a different team every week you're facing the same team so to speak every week <laughs> that's fascinating that and uh, is it the case in the u.s and is it the case in your personal opinion that it's it's better if the same teacher can stick with the same class throughout let's say five years or, or six years sometimes i mean I, I know in the i've been lucky enough at one point to teach a class for seven years right through from year seven through to a level and it was one of the best experiences of my life is is that something that's possible in the u.s and is that something that you kind of subscribe to if if, if it was a possibility I have no idea. I've read one study. Uh, I think it was in Houston, which is a city uh, in in our country, uh, where they there was some natural experiment, uh, uh, some opportunity for that. I can't remember why. Where some group of kids ended up. Uh, oh no, I'm thinking of something slightly different. I'm thinking of the one where they had a uh, some kids got specialists for math, where some students did not ah, okay. in in their early grades. Um, and you would have thought, oh, the kids who have the math specialist would do better, but it wasn't the case. The opposite was the case. And I think of a, a, a valid, my, my interpretation of that is, uh, it's good for kids to have people teach them who know them and try and spend more time with, with the same teacher. Uh, a, yes, um, yes. Now, whether that, 
Whether that extends to multiple years, I don't know. So I would love to see that happen more because it's different and interesting. It would be, it would be different and interesting in our country. Uh, I don't think it's really possible except in rare cases where you have a new school. Yes. And, um, and, and, and kids are getting older as the, and, you know, some, sometimes new schools start with a night with a, uh, I, I can't do the language switch. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, the, that's fine. The, the ninth, the ninth grade. Some kids will start with the uh, the school will start and they'll just have a ninth grade and then it'll have a ninth and a yes, tenth grade. Yes. You know, ninth, tenth, and eleventh. And so, so that's possible. And and maybe that could be studied that way. I don't. I'm not up on that research, but I I love the idea. I would do it uh, to try it sometime. The the other thing, just on um, that, it's not really possible. No, and again, uh, apologies for kind of taking us off on this tangent. But the, the final point I'll make on that is is there's a lot of those schools springing up over here in the in the UK where we'll um will they'll just take a year seven to begin with, and then the next year that year seven will go through to year eight, and then they'll take a new year seven and they'll build the school up um over over a course of five right. five to seven years. And what fascinates me about that, and this is something I've never had the opportunity to, do, but I would love to, is that as a maths teacher in that school, you've you've got the potential to teach essentially the same lesson three or four times over the course of a day or over the course of a week to different classes and having spoken to people who've been fortunate enough to do that they say that what inevitably happens is every time you teach that lesson you just get better and better and better because you know how to pitch it you know what works what doesn't work and so on as opposed to what I do is when I teach a lesson and it's a bit of a disaster I've got to sometimes wait an entire year to, to, to put it right whereas these teachers can do it you know 30 seconds afterwards or or you know two periods later throughout the day that that's something that excites me that that possibility of teaching the same course or the same um, the same series of topics to different classes and and just kind of playing around with that if, if that makes sense it makes sense the other thing i fantasized about is uh i you know and this is really impossible but <laughs> uh uh it's not impossible in the lower grades to teach maths and reading and writing and history and science but yes. but in the upper grades that's never done for the seemingly entirely sensible reason that it's very hard to find anybody yes. who could competently teach that now i'm not saying that i could competently teach english uh writing or literature or or anything but but i feel like it would be a lot of fun to be with the same group of secondary students and teach them maths, and then science, and then history, and then writing. I think that would be a tremendous amount of fun, uh, if very difficult yeah. and wildly impractical, and not a good idea. I would not <laughs> recommend it. Just to be clear, I don't. I think it would just be fun. It's a terrible idea. No one should do that. No school should do that. But yeah, I think that'd be fun. Fascinated, fascinated. Right. Well, um, l- let me ask you this now. So I'm, I'm interested, and I, I'm always privileged when I get a math specialist um, uh, on the show. Um, I always want to dive into their planning process because it, it fascinates me, and it's one of my listeners' favourite things to hear about. So I wonder, Michael, if you could just t- talk us through how you put together either a lesson or a sequence of lessons, and go into as much detail as you want. There's no way you could go into too much detail with this. And at various points, I'll annoyingly inter- interrupt you and uh, no doubt no. Take, take us off uh, to, to different kind of places so so just start with it talk us through the topic the class um, how many lessons you've got for it and, and where does your thinking start yeah so could we could we start with uh what do you call 
I call third graders. Yeah. They're young kids. What would you call those? Yeah, I think we call them year fours, I think. Year four. Yeah. So you're saying this is a very simple system and I shouldn't be struggling as much I as I should. Th- I well, a year. I think I'm going for the plus one approach, but I could be horrible. I'll tell you a good way to te- test this. What age would your grade sixes be? What would they be? Oh, I have no idea. All right. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. If they're, if they're around me. about 11 and 12, then I, sure. th- I think, I think we're on right. track. Okay, so yeah, this is year four we're talking about here then, I think. Okay. Okay, so year four. So, um, you know, I, I'm a very reactive teacher. Um, and by that I mean I, 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 my school doesn't have strong curricular documents on purpose. They don't have a strong curriculum for maths. Uh, things are uh, uh, willy-nilly, no, <laughs> loosey-goosey. Yep. <laughs> uh, uh, and that's, you know... That works out okay. Uh, uh, it does give teachers more choice. How, um, how, how loosey goosey are we talking here, Michael? How, how kind of vague would it be? Uh, it, well, well, let me put it like this. So, I, I was going to tell you about subtraction, mm. subtracting, minusing, mm. uh, in with these third graders, these 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 year four students. Um, but one thing is that there's not. So, so I'm, I know that I need to teach kids in my, in this class how to subtract, how to, how to, how to do that. Uh, that's something I need to do. But I can't be 100% sure what experiences they've had in the prior year. Right. I, I, I can't know. So we're not building systematically. Uh, right. It's not, it's not like all students in year three. Yes. Uh, have to do such and such, and then year four takes it from there to there. Got it. It's, it's they. Everyone's had some experience, um, and 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 so what that means practically for me, um, is I, I need to be ready to react. I need to 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 assess and react uh, in a smart way, um, rather than just kind of jumping in mm. and thinking abstractly about where a good place to start would be. So, so very frequently, I'm, 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 I'm spending time trying to, to, to investigate kids and try to figure out what they know, so as I can build on what they do know, because uh, I don't, I can't be sure what they do or do not know, and that's always true, uh, I think, in every school, but it, I feel it pretty acutely in mine. Yes, got it. Well, okay. So subtraction. So, so what's happened the last couple of years is, um, so the, the the class that I teach these these third graders, these year fours, they um, my school has six classes for for their third graders, six different groups. Is that what you call it? Anyway, yes, so yeah. um, and uh, uh, and they go uh, the the ability grouping is is there's three regular pace classes and three accelerated classes where the accelerated classes cover things more quickly. And would they be, would there be like a, a top accelerated class and a second and a third, or would they be kids just jumbled up across those three? Jumbled up. Got it. Got it. Jumbled up. So it's, it's, it's kind of rough, uh, sorting. Yes. Liability. Yes. Which I think works pretty well in our school. It keeps things from being, too competitive. Uh, otherwise, I'm, we're at a, a, a kind of fancy schmancy private school. 
Hmm. So I, there would definitely be parents who were ambitious for yes. their students to, to be in the top yes. level. Is my son in the second class or the top class? <laughs> yeah. He says that his friends are all in the top class and he is not. <laughs> and I'm just calling to see if there's any reason for that. <laughs> um, so it keeps things sane. Sure. Uh, and it also keeps things so that uh, uh, you don't have... I think it works well in our school. There's, there, it's easy to move between them between years, so kids aren't stuck forever in 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 one thing. And uh, well, anyway, so and and the classes are pretty small. I have 17 students in my third grade class this year. Wow, what, is that that is that unusual? Is that because of the nature of the school? Yes. Yeah, got it. Yes, it's unusual. It's it's a it's a private school. If I was in a public school in New York City, I would have I don't know 20, 30 kids. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, well, anyway, so, so, so here's that class. It's the beginning of the year. They've all done some subtraction in, in the previous year. And I am quite sure, uh, just because I've taught this, 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 these third, not these third graders, but I've been teaching third grade at this school for many years. I am very sure that all of them have seen the standard algorithm for subtraction, mm. uh, which we call a uh, regrouping or, or, or borrowing yes yes yeah so i am a hundred percent sure that all of them have seen it i am also a hundred percent sure that many of them have forgotten it yep and i'm also uh uh this year what happened was uh, uh i i saw that a lot of them did not have single digit addition and subtraction facts down they didn't know automatically or easily uh what nine plus six would be or what uh 12 minus four would be yes and so thinking about this, I'm thinking, okay, are they ready for me to revisit? Uh, or, or let me put it like this. Uh, could I uh, – sorry, let me, let me pause reflectively. Uh, so I see this group and I'm saying, do I have time to work on things – that'll help them better understand the standard algorithm, yes. this borrowing thing. They've seen it before, and it, and it did not stick. They did not master it. So I could dive into it again, but do I have time to work on some of the prerequisite skills? Can I can I get at those in some other ways? And so I do that. And so uh, so what I've so so to teach subtraction, what I'm doing is I'm uh, uh, I start with these facts and I start with, with lots and lots of things that are subtraction, but are not this standard algorithm. And it's not because I don't value borrowing. It's, it's, it's something a little bit different. They've all seen it and I want them to learn it, but I'm recognizing that there's a lot of both uh, of, of procedural knowledge and, mm. and fact knowledge that will help them with that. They might be why they had such a hard time learning it in the first place. Yes. So I'm, I'm trying to buy myself some time to get the class's prerequisite knowledge up to speed and more at the same place. Yes. So I, I do a lot of things for that, um, uh, and kind of for everything. Uh, this is uh, uh, I love distance problems. Do you ever do distance problems on a number line? I, I love those. Those are so much fun. What? Well, give us an example, Michael. Yeah. Well, it, for these kids. Uh, you know, how far away are 12, the numbers 12 and 100? 
Oh, okay. Right, but there's a lot you can do with that. Uh, there's nothing stopping you from moving into negatives right away. That's one thing. There's no reason why young kids, even, uh, I think sometimes negatives are reserved as kind of a negative integers. Yes. Are, are, are reserved for, uh, uh, for kind of mathematically gifted students in younger years. But there's no reason why, right? They're, they're, they're not conceptually that difficult, uh, as to, to, to ask these kids, you know, what's negative a hundred to, uh, to, to 86, how far away are those numbers? That's my, my kids love that. These kids love thinking about that. Uh, and, and, and the purpose in all this is, is trying to really give them a chance to work on the idea that, that, uh, uh, that when you're subtracting, you can think about that as how far away two numbers are. Right. So that like 12 minus nine, uh, is three because nine is and 12 or three away. The thing is, uh, uh, I'm not hoping that they'll just kind of make that connection on their own. At the same time, I'm doing, uh, we call them flashcards here. Yes. Yeah. 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 Mem- trying to memorize them, trying to, trying to just know them, trying to know them without having to derive it. Uh, what I, I feel like I'm getting muddled here. The no, thing I'm no. trying to say is that I'm doing all these things at once. I'm not, I'm, this is not, the way I think about this is I, I've got a chance to build up prerequisite knowledge and I'm trying to do all these things. So what might be called, uh, in some corners, kind of a conceptual activity that's related to subtraction. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to do that while I'm also teaching, uh, fact, you know, flashcard knowledge and I'm gearing up to try to teach via examples and practice and all the things that, 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 that are valuable for building procedural knowledge, I'm also trying to get at this, this procedure. Um, but there's kind of this big, I, I, I see it as almost like a cluster of things that orbit this, this algorithm, this procedure. This is fa- then, a- absolutely fascinating, this, Michael. I, would this be, so a kind of buzzword that, that certainly goes around kind of UK maths edgy Twitter is, is, is atomization. That this idea that before you teach something like the written algorithm for, for subtraction, you first do the pre, sort the prerequisites out. You break the, the kind of knowledge that kids are going to need for that, um, for the formal algorithm down into its atoms and you make sure each of those is nailed so that when kids do come to do the the formal algorithm they there aren't they aren't having to expend a load of whether you want to call it working memory capacity or attention or whatever on each of those atoms for, for to use the use that terminology is that what this is or do you see it as something different no i see it in that way i see this as how do you react when you're you're a classroom teacher you're not building a system and you're 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 living in a world where things are not atomized around you. Mm. So so kids are coming from different classes yes. in the previous year, and they have different prerequisite knowledge. And you want things to be engaging for everybody and challenging for everybody. You don't want. Uh, 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 so one thing that I, that I messed up the first couple times I taught this class is I would teach subtraction as the very first topic. Uh, I would teach it via example or something like that. And uh, I would have t- two problems immediately. First, it was much easier for some students than others. Yes. And second, kids would start, uh, I would start hearing complaints, very polite complaints, <laughs> kind of very American, I, I, I guess, 
by reputation, this is something that happens in, in your country also. But he's kind of very polite. Oh, you know, Louise was just wondering if we'd be doing anything else new this year because they've already <laughs> seen subtraction in the previous year. She likes your class, though. Uh, so, 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 and that puts pressure on you to not spend enough time on this topic or to yes. forth into a kind of uh, tension. And I, I elect not to have that tension as much as possible, to, to, especially in the start of the year when people are trying to decide whether to trust me or not. And, and so what I've kind of developed is, uh, is, are, are ways to build that knowledge patiently, systematically, uh, uh, without it seeming as if we're doing old things. Uh, that they've already seen in second grade, like like the borrowing procedure. Yes. Uh, while while still really kind of doggedly making sure that everybody can do addition and subtraction with single digits in their heads without too much cognitive effort. So and, can I can I ask Michael? Because this, this is this is this is perfect. This and um, just just uh, so I can visualize this. What, what, what's this actually looking like in in the classroom when, when you're doing maybe one of these the flashcard activities or or the um, the distance problems? Is it you at the front kind of shouting out different different questions and the kids are they responding on? Is it mini whiteboards? Are they working in right? Pairs? I just I just I just shout at kids. I thought that must be. I thought that. It's a lot of different things. So, uh, uh, it, it, those are, so you you you've brought up two examples. They look quite different. The distance problems are a skill. Yeah. I'll start with uh, maybe an example on the board, something to get them used to, to to noticing all the strange things about a number line, all these weird marks everywhere. Mm. Um, maybe I'll put two numbers up there and say. Okay. Uh, uh, oh, uh, uh, here's a little bug on the left side. How far would this bug have to jump to get between these two numbers? Yes. And I'll ask kids to talk about that. And then we'll change up the numbers into something kind of playfully different, uh, ramping it up, trying to get kids excited in whole group, and then, and then having a, a collection of problems that I can ask them to try Got it. on their own. Sometimes that includes things like whiteboards. Um, I try not to. I try to not have too many days in a row of the exact same format. Yes. Uh, just to keep things lively and different and interesting. So uh, if we're up at the board for a lot of the period, I, I, I will try to balance that with problems uh, uh, that kids will try on their own. Um, I'll try to balance that with mental math mental maths, uh, where I ask everybody to think about something on their own. Uh, one thing that I do that, that the visitors are sometimes a little bit, uh, they notice, is I'll put a problem on the board, ask everybody to silently think about it, and then ask everybody to say the answer out loud together. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, with the thought being there that, that uh, I, I don't want to call on one particular student in that case because I'd love everybody to feel accountable. And uh, I'd also like every student to have the chance to participate. Yes. Um, all at once. So kind of communal uh, letting out of the answer is, is one way that I do that. And it also gets the answer out of the way. And I can, if I want to, ask a follow-up question to, 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 to push on uh, some explanation. If I want to kind of reveal, uh, if I want to say, okay, but why, I, I, can, I can do that because uh, we're not all waiting to say a number. Got it. Uh, uh, and then I can ask an individual kid. So I, I, I do stuff like that. I, I, I do, I ask kids to go and solve problems on their own. I'll do maybe a quiz here and there. 
Um, uh, does that give you a picture? I don't know, but it the flashcard thing is quite different. Yeah, go on. Tell me about the flashcards. How you use those? Well, okay. So, so flashcards um, in class are a tricky thing to do. I th- I think because uh, uh, there's only so long that my squirrely nine and ten year olds are willing to just kind of sit there uh, uh, and. Uh, and, and and ask themselves questions and, mm. and, and say the answers, check the answers on the back. They will do that. What I've noticed is that if you leave them by themselves, they sometimes don't try very hard. They don't wait very hard. They don't, don't wait very long. Uh, uh, I'll get a lot of kids saying, like, I'm done. I went through the deck. <laughs> I went through the deck. Well, yeah, that's not the point. So so I do a lot of uh, of of what you might call modeling up at the front, trying to... to um, Trying to show kids what it might mean by uh, by putting cards up and asking the class to again think of the answer in their heads and then shout it out all together. Oh, so it's not a race. What what kind uh, of things are on the cards, Michael? Are these are these your kind of straightforward subtraction facts, kind of number bomb things? What what's on these yes. cards? Yeah. The short answer is yes. I as the year goes on, I sometimes put things from other topics that aren't traditionally on there, but these are very traditional questions. These are. On one side is, you know, 90 plus 20, and the other side is 110. Mm, yes. Um, I often do, this is like so, uh, in the, this is so nitty gritty. <laughs> not loosey goosey. <laughs> not wishy washy. Quite the opposite. Yeah, I like it. Right. Uh, but the nitty gritty thing is, uh, because kids have all recognized that single, I don't think there's a tremendous difference for them conceptually and, 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 but not conceptually. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that, um, uh, kids have often seen and practiced their single-digit addition and subtraction facts in previous years, and I would often get complaints, oh, this is too easy. Mm. So I just do multiples of 10 instead. So if I want to practice 5 plus 6, uh, I'll put 50 plus 60 in there. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I li- I or 500 that. plus 600, and, and, you know, it's all the same to me. Uh, <laughs> I, I think it – so – so I'll, I'll do that. One thing that I do that's a little bit different with them is I do backwards and forwards practice is what I call it, which is um, – uh, and I really want this to be dead simple because I'm asking kids to do this on their own. So I, I really do try to be pretty simple with this. But if you uh, – but I, I ask – we'll practice both the forwards way, which is you know 50 plus 65 plus 6, but also the backwards way, 11. What could be on the other side? Mm. Um, and a great one of my favorite ways of doing this is if you have two students paired together um, or any number of students, one group can look at one side of the card. The other group can look at the other side of the card and each is trying to decide what's on the other side. Yes. I really like that. There's a lot of good things about that. First is you can pair kids so they can uh, do this together, which is just more fun. And these are children. I like having fun in class. Um, it makes the rest of my teaching day easier, and I just enjoy it, and I think school should be fun if possible. So uh, so they'll be looking at – one kid will be looking at 5 plus 6, and the other kid will be looking at 11. And uh, uh, there's no race this way, right? If, if both kids are looking at the same side of the card, inevitably I would find that 
that one kid would say 11 first yes, always yes. and then one kid gets no practice yeah uh so there's uh so each child does have a task to do and uh a role to play even after the number has been revealed so if when a student says oh i think 11 is on your side the other student is not surprised they are looking at the number 11 mm. What they don't know is that five plus six is on the other side, and so they still have a chance to think about that. Um, it would be easier to explain that, Craig, if we had a card between us. No, I'm, so, I, I'm visualizing it, but my question is, so obviously, I mean, this is the strength of that activity, the fact that if, if I'm looking at 11 and I'm trying to figure out what's on the other side, there's an infinite possibilities that, that could be on the other side. And is, is that the kind of co conversations you want these kids to be having, or is the other child who's looking at the five plus six, giving out a few clues about what it might be. What, what, what does it tend to look like? What, what, what conversations do the kids have at this point? Well, you know, frequently, as it, as it turns out, uh, we're talking about subtraction here. So usually kids will know what operation is on the other side. Mm. That said, there's still possibilities. Um, but I think it's good for kids to generate possibilities. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the other kids should give a hint. If you're stuck, give a hint. Um, uh, give a hint or give up. It's all, it's all good. Uh, uh, there's, I have actually played where you get one point. I mean, the points are made up, so who cares? But, uh, I have played this, told kids to play this, and I've played this with kids, where you get, you know, kind of one point if you say something true and two points if you get what's on the other side of the card. Okay, yeah. I like that. I like that. I like that. Um, Okay, so we're, we're at the stage, we're doing the kind of prerequisites, but you crucially, and again, if I've interpreted this right, we're doing it in a way that doesn't seem like you are formally teaching kids how to, for example, add um, single digit integers because you know they've done that before, but you need to make sure that they're, they're fluent in this because it's going to be necessary for, for what's coming next. That's um, right. So, so then when you, when you get to the point now where you are going to teach them the, um, the, the formal algorithm for, for written subtraction, what, what, what does that bit of the, the, the teaching process look like, Michael? So, so, you know, when it's time to teach a procedure, that is when I use example problem pairs. Uh, that's, that's, that's for me the moment when I want kids to learn a specific procedure. That is precisely when I use the kind of cognitive, uh, oh geez, why am I <laughs> cognitive load theory? Oh no, cognitive no. load theory. It's theory, never too, yeah. it's never too early in a podcast to bring that in, Michael. So we're, we're, we're talking, yes. yeah, now we're talking, now we're uh, talking. Yeah. So, <laughs> and just, so, can so I, can I, can I just ask just before you describe, cause the, I'm, and I'm fascinated to hear what your example problem pairs look like and compare them to, uh, to mine, but have, have you always done the worked examples this way or is this something that evolved over time? Uh, it evolved over time. The big change for me uh, was some number. Oh, I know how old it is because my son was just born and I was working on this project. So four years ago, it must be, I did a I wrote an essay. It's on the Internet. Uh, you can read it if you'd like. Uh, uh, it's an, a long essay about John Sweller's development of cognitive load theory. Mm. Um, I wrote a long essay about that where I'd, I was just trying to understand it and I was trying to kind of write almost an intellectual history of its development, um, and trying to understand, uh, try to understand it through its debates. And at the time, I I thought, 
and that when it was time to give examples, uh, I, I was not particularly thoughtful about example giving. I would just kind of write it on the board, sheepishly, <laughs> just like, well, class, okay, here's the thing. <laughs> and I would show an example, and I'd be like, okay, now you, now you, you know, this is... I, I knew that I wasn't doing it particularly effectively. I really didn't have any... I kind of thought that because I wasn't doing it effectively that it was an ineffective and limited mode yes. of teaching. Yes, I know exactly um, what you mean. So, uh, and then as I was reading cognitive load theory stuff and all these research papers and trying to write this essay, uh, it still didn't really click for me. It didn't really, I didn't, I, I kind of understood on some level that, 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 uh, that explanations could be done more effectively. Uh, but it was, it took me, it took me a little bit. And the last thing that put, that helped me get a vision for how to do, um, how to do example problem pairs was a project called Algebra by Example, mm. which I learned about from, uh, a curriculum project called New Visions here in New York City. And, uh, and, and the New Visions people showed me Algebra by Example, and then everything kind of clicked. Because then I realized why things were working, what a good explanation would do, and how the pieces kind of fit together. So, so that was that. That was my trajectory. Fascinating, and it's again, it's I really resonate with that, Michael, because I was exactly the same. Um, there would not be a great deal of thought put into my examples. I just I just do them because they felt like the thing to do, and the thought more thought would go into the the activities that I would give my kids to do after the example. The example is more kind of a means to an end. We just get through this, then let's crack on yes. with something a bit more interesting. And again, l like yourself, when I started reading Sweller's work and and, and others, um, that's when my development of, of the example problem pair um, approach re really um, came to life and it's been a, a game changer for me but i can i mean I, I can't hold back any longer michael i've got to ask what what, what does your what does your process look like can you can you take us through yeah so, yeah go for it yeah totally so first um let me get super detailed mm, super please do super practical i'll pick a problem um we could talk forever about picking a problem mm. but i'll pick a problem and I'll write it on my little computer program, my little word processing thing. Right. And um, there's three sections on the page. And this, I, and, and I'm in, very influenced by both Sweller, but also the interpretation of Sweller and other research also. Uh, he's not the only one who's ever written about worked examples. Yes. So, uh, uh, but all that went into the design of the algebra by example materials that I love and um and so that's what I kind of copy and emulate. So there's three sections of my page. There's the example. There is some prompts for ex explanation. And then there's the you try, the practice that goes, that's paired with the example in the example problem pair. Uh, so the first thing I do is I write the example. And I am so lazy and, and I, I just, I leave that all blank. I, I don't write the uh, – I pick the problem. Yes. I don't write anything. I don't show any of the steps or anything. Yes, yes. Um, and then I kind of tentatively draft out some explanation prompts. Yes. Some things that I think will be important to draw attention to. And then I pick a problem that I think will be 
helpful to go with it, changes some surface level features, uh, 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 requires some minor application. Not exactly the same thing, unless I think the same thing would be quite cognitively demanding. Uh, uh, but if there's room to try something a little bit different or change the appearance a little bit, if I think that that will be... Uh, the point is, is that that's good for facilitating transfer. Yes. So I do that unless I think it's going to be a cognitive washout. Um, and then, But at this point, there's no example. So I'll, I'll print three or four copies of this right away. And I put a lot of time into trying to get to... So, so that I, I handwrite the so-called student work. Mm. I handwrite it. I don't type it out. Yes. I want, I want to show a clear distinction between the problem and the solution. Mm. So I, 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 the, my rule is that the problem is typed, but the, uh, but the, but the solution is handwritten. And this is also why I try not to put my examples on the board and I try to use paper uh, so that I can plan out the presentation really carefully of the of the of the example oh this is now this is fascinating straight away michael so you're not using this as kind of a live demonstration of you solving the problem on the board this is a no pre-written that the what the students have got printed out and they're looking at but they're seeing the complete example would that be right yes that's very important to me um i think that that it is good for kids and when they're comprehending this to try to understand the whole thing as long as it's not. Yeah. I, I think that it's good to show the whole thing at once instead of rolling it out step by step. That's fascinating because I mean, I, I do it step by step and my, my justification is that I want students kind of attending to a specific part of it at, at, at a certain time, kind of having time to digest that. And then here's the next step. Here's the next step. What's, what's, what's the argument for having it all together? My argument is that uh, I think that it's when you roll it out step by step, the thing that I worry about is that kids say, uh-huh, uh-huh, as it's going. <laughs> but but if something's really new to you and, uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's a long explanation, you might reach the end and say, hey, I understood every single part of that. I understood that. But you've forgotten You've lost in working memory the thing that happened first. Right. Okay. So I try to show full mathematical thoughts is the way is my distinction. I try to ask kids to make sense of full mathematical thoughts, not uh, and I'll separate them into chunks. Um, I'll visually separate if there's important steps. I'll group them because that's something else that I've read in research is is useful in drafting these things. Clearly distinguishing sub steps. And, but, and just uh, just to go specific on that, are you is that kind of like a ring around them, or is it sep separated by space on the page? How do you, how do you break it up into these related chunks? I, I mean, I I use space on the page mm. because I would very much like to. Um, I, I take the idea that this is well. There's two reasons. One is because I want to reduce the number of markings as much as possible. I want as, as few extraneous, so we're yes. talking about cognitive load theory, I want as few extraneous markings as possible. Mm. So if I can get away with space, and uh, uh, sometimes I'll stick an arrow in if there's something that I want to point out specifically. Yes. But uh, um, the other thing I, well, okay. 
I'll tell you that in a second. <laughs> uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves, Craig. Let's sure, take our time. sure, sure. We don't let's want cog- we don't want cognitive so, overload. Let's let's do it. Let's yeah. break it down. So right. So I'll, I'll use space whenever possible. Uh, and there was another reason why I do that, and I can't remember now. <laughs> uh, but it was very important. It was sure, great. of it course. Was actually, it was brilliant and very fascinating. <laughs> um, right. So, um, so I'll write that all by hand. Yep. And I want kids to study the whole thing. Yep. And make sense of the whole thing. Uh, and the way I'll do that in class is with a routine. So, so I don't kind of just kind of talk through it. Usually, um, I'd be willing to, I'd be totally willing to, and I do sometimes, but usually I think that something like the following, uh, is a good way to help every kid attend to all the details of the explanation, especially when the example is complex. Right. So what I'll do very frequently, not always, but very frequently is I have document cameras uh, in my rooms, mm. which project what's on the on the page. Right. Um, if I didn't, I would scan it or have a slide or take a picture or something. Sure, but sure. the point is, um, I'll show kids the picture with the solution covered up and just the problem. And I'll say, what we're studying today is we're going to study an example uh, of how to solve this problem. You might take a quick second and ask yourself, what would you do to solve this problem? I don't ask for kids to share. I don't ask for kids. My goal there is to just make sure kids understand what the problem is asking and have a moment of thoughtfulness. And at this point, so, they don't have it in front of them on individual They don't sheets. have it in front of Got them. It. They Got don't it. have it in front of them at all. Then I will reveal the whole example, and I'll ask everybody in the class to read it and to put a thumb up to let me know when they've read every symbol. You don't need to put a thumb up because you've understood every symbol. Just put a thumb up when you've read it all. Got it. And, and then and, once... and just sorry, just for clarification, the prompt. There's no prompts in the middle column at this point. Is that right? It's just that's your... right. There's nothing. They're just seeing the problem, the example. Got it. Okay. Once all those thumbs are up, I say, great. Turn to your partner. I've assigned partners, by the way. Hmm. Turn to your partner and take turns explaining this until both of you could explain every step, every single thing that's written here. You need to be able to explain uh, every single part of the solution. You need to be able to explain, and then they talk. Now, that talk is is good. That talk, I find, is it hums. The room is buzzing. <laughs> I like that hums. I like and, that a lot. And and it's good mathematical thought. Very frequently, I'll hear ahas or kind of oh, where where kids are making sense of the explanation in front of them. And are you, uh, Michael, uh, during this, uh, what, what are you doing? Are you wandering around the class over here in these conversations or are you keeping out of it? I'm trying very hard to hear. I'm trying very hard to understand mm. what needs to happen next. What I'm trying to assess is do I need to walk through the whole thing step by step? Yes. Now, um, where is the sticking point? What is confusing here? And um, uh, or. Does everybody get it pretty much? And am I ready to ask kids to try these self-explanation prompts mm. so that they can kind of consolidate what they understand with these answering these self-explanation questions? Which again, there's that's inspired by research that sure. uh, that self-explanation is the difference between kids who get out something out of studying examples and those who don't. Yes. Where what they found, uh, and I, th- I think you've written about or, or you've I've seen this on your podcast. 
podcast yes, research yes. links. So, so, and I can't remember the name of the paper, so I'm sorry, but but that but that there are that not every student, uh, even though examples are you know more efficient than say problem solving for novices, it's not true that every kid gets the same thing out of those. And again, there's a difference. Strong students tend to self-explain. Mm, yes. And 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 weaker students will not tend to self-explain, have a more superficial understanding of the example. And so I'm trying to get everybody on board with the example. Um, I really am. It doesn't take a lot of minutes. This is, so far we're talking about two minutes. Right. Okay. Uh, and then I'll pause. If we need to talk, if it seems like there's confusion, we'll talk through as, as kind of you said, step by step. Sure. I think that that's really nice now because you have the whole thing in front of you and you can just talk about and I remember this happened a couple weeks ago when I was um, teaching systems of equations to my older kids, and we were studying the substitution. Is that what you call it there? Yes, yeah, simultaneous. Substitution. Yes, yeah, simultaneous equations and substitution. Ooh, Absolutely. Okay. okay. Uh, so uh, that's really complicated. There's three or four yeah, steps. Yeah, absolutely. So it was nice once it was all up there. My question to every uh, – it turned out that kids were a little bit overwhelmed when they were looking at the whole thing by themselves. So that, that told me to step back. I went and I said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to – there's four groups of things here. We're going to name each of them. So I, I pointed to the first kind of clump of math, and I mm. said, what is – I made up a student's name so that we could talk about this. What is Samantha doing in this first clump? And took some ideas from kids, and I – said, well, none of these ideas are good enough. So so here's what the first clump should be called. The first clump should be called uh, solving for the variable. Right. Why is Samantha solving for the variable? Where is she headed? You know, so we can kind of see the whole thing progressing uh, as we're kind of, what we're essentially doing is I'm instructing, I'm, I'm presenting a model for the example. Um, once they've noticed everything with the example, I'm trying to, to, to name it. it might, now, I don't know if I could go back in time and realizing that they were going to have a harder time with that than I thought, maybe it would have been good to label those clumps. Maybe it would have been good to simply say, maybe, yeah, maybe I should have, maybe, maybe labeling the clumps would have been a good idea, an improvement over this. Sure. I don't know. Um, and then, but, but after whatever whole group discussion we need to have, that's when I say, try the reflection questions and then the, the explanation questions and then try the problem yourself. I always include more than just kids need some uh, something to do uh, after that first example. Uh, sorry, after that first practice problem uh, uh, in my classes, because I want to make sure that I have time to give the slowest students yes. to yeah. solve that problem. So there's always something else to do after that first one. But that first practice problem in the example problem pairs is the crucial one. So can we uh, can we just take a step back here? So if we're in the, we're in the class, we have the if I'm a student in the class, I have studied the worked example from start to finish that's on the board. I've had a discussion with the person next to me. If there's problems, I've listened to you the teacher talking through. And then is it a case that I then get my own copy of this kind of paper copy of the worked example and these kind of self-explanation prompts are they then on this piece of paper yes and, and what do they look like and what am i expected to do with them? they look like, like questions with space beneath them to write and what would be an example of it what, what might one of these prompts be why did samantha uh choose to solve for y could she have solved for x in this case got it 
got it. And is this for me to do on my own, or is this for me to discuss yes. with the person next to me? I am. I don't know. I've done it both ways. Right. I don't. Depends on the class. Got it. Got it. So I work my way through these 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 prompts. And are you? Um, is that ever discussed as a as a whole class? Do you take kids through these prompts, or is it again? Is that on an ad hoc basis? If you sense that there's confusion, you may. Very you may. ad hoc. Got it. Got it. And then. I just once I've done the self-explanation prompts, I then have a go at the the related problem. Would, would that be right? That is correct. Got it. Got it. And could you just give me a sense if I do if I was to finish this this quicker and then perhaps some of my some of my peers in my class, what would be would it be a just a more challenging problem that, that you'd have lined up for me or would it be a contextual problem? What, what might that follow up work look like? I'm not consistent there. God. It depends on the day. It really depends on the day. It might be a review problem. It might be jump right into the next problem set that I've prepared. It might be you can take a peek at the next worked example that's on the same page. Uh, it might be that I've come up with some some challenging version of this problem. Yes. Um, yeah, it really depends. This is this this is fascinating. This and this is what I always do on these podcasts, Michael. After after I've spoken to the guest, is I normally go on a big walk or something like that just to try and digest everything, and then I I record a takeaway at the end. And and one thing I'm going to need to reflect on here is 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 the advantage of having it all in front of the kids versus as 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 to use your phrase the kind of rolling out approach that I do because it's again it's when you read Sweller's you read Sweller's work and, and and the related research it is very much about studying completed worked examples versus this rollout is that your reading of it as well that is that is definitely my reading and I am definitely influenced by 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 my reading in this yeah, absolutely. And can I can I ask as well, just just on this, um, I noticed this is from my um, limited experience with the algebra by example resources, and I know we'll we'll probably direct listeners to, to to where they can check those out later on. But from my reading of it, they also include incorrect worked examples, and and like prompts would be to to use Samantha again. What mistake has Samantha made there? Firstly, right. is, is that right? And when do they come into to your sequence of, of teaching could that come in at any stage or is the, do you make a definite decision that now's the time to start introducing these incorrect examples well i i don't have the you are correct that algebra by example does that i've also um i've used that for for many years uh incorrect examples also um like a lot of things in teaching i'm only starting to maybe notice patterns in in and get a little bit more explicit about mm. about how I see it. The way I see it now is is they're useful. Um, the most useful moment would be if you want to call out a particular mistake. This I was uh, uh, I, I did this. I don't know what you call it. Solving for a variable, reformulating a, uh, a yeah. formula. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sure. So uh, my kids, uh, what was it? It was like three a x equals t or something like that. <laughs> and they would all subtract a x when they were solving, or oh. they would all subtract. You know what I mean? They they should be dividing. They, exactly. they were subtracting. That's that's a mistake so, that crosses the Atlantic as well. Yeah, we we, we have plenty oh, of that. One. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so you know, I thought it'd be valuable to call that out to make kids aware of that mm. and to name that mistake so that uh, they could know. But you don't want to like I'm I'm sure you're 
you know, uh, you don't want to lead off with that. You yes. don't want to say, all right, welcome to, uh, yeah. <laughs> welcome, to, welcome to day number one of, of, of Michael's geometry class. Last year we started by naming shapes. This year we're going to start with an incorrect example, uh, cause, cause you just don't have any resources for, for explaining. Um, and I think about this, this is a broader principle in my thinking about, uh, I once wrote a piece about scientific communication also, um, with Ben Riley of Deans for Impact. And my thesis there is my thesis here also, which is uh, you want to help people uh, – you know, the way to shake people from wrong beliefs or wrong practices is to first teach them something correct, uh, a correct theory, a correct practice, a correct procedure, and then point out the connection between that and the wrong thing. Mm. Um, and I, I never want, so when we were talking about learning styles and our, and the approach, the case that we made there was, uh, it's hard to ask teachers to ditch learning styles if you haven't first supported them in building a positive theory, uh, of whatever they're trying to theorize about. If it's student abilities or if it's, uh, uh, instruction, multimodal instruction, uh, we argued, and I believe this, that, that you should, Start by positively explaining, um, helping people develop actual mental models that are useful, that uh, uh, not because that's like a secret way of helping people ditch the mistakes or the false things, but because what learning means, uh, and I believe this with procedures also, like we're talking about here, what, but what learning that something is false means is not just the fact that it's false, but, but but something deeper you're replacing you're, you're you have this new thing that you can that you can use to explain why something else is wrong and so you never want to be in a position i think with where you're showing kids a mistake and saying this is wrong and and struggling really to explain why it's wrong yes that uh uh so so i so my i guess my heuristic for when do i show kids mistakes is can they explain if i point this out Will they be able to explain why it's wrong? Got it. Got it. And can I ask just on a general point, Michael? Um, would this be a controversial approach in the U.S. or would this be would this be quite a common way that that teachers would would teach and model procedures? Or are you a bit of a maverick? I don't know. It's a big country. <laughs> it really is. You know, it's a it's a big country with so many schools and so many people involved in education. So like, uh. Certainly, like the university-based mathematical progressives are the same progressives that you have in the UK, and pe- people who are ideologically progressive would 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 maybe have a hard time with this. Mm. Uh, maybe it's too direct, but but really, anybody who's t- teaching in any classroom it comes to moments when they explain things. Yes, uh, so. So this is just my version of, of of explaining procedures. I think it's I think it's engaging. Um, I think it's active. I think it's 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 challenging if I pick the right problems. Um, I think it does more than just ask kids to mirror an example. I think it asks kids to understand them, and I notice more understanding and aha moments when uh when i do this than when i do other kinds of explanations and examples so so why should this be controversial 
Yeah, it's. I mean, I I agree, but I know certainly when I'm lucky enough to speak to teachers, whether it's conferences or visit different schools, this this doesn't quite sit right with with, with everybody for, for the reasons that you allude to. There there is um, there is certainly a bit of a divide in the UK, and it sounds like it's um, it's a similar one possibly um, in the US as well. And um, could I just ask just a final one on this examples, Michael? Just to, just for clarification, would this be some this same um, approach? Would this be something that you would use with your younger students right through to your older students or would there be any modifications to how you delivered this along the way well what i found is that younger kids so we started talking about subtraction Mm. with my younger kids i i I do examples like this with my younger kids uh the only real difference is that they're not as good at writing yes so uh you don't it's it's not great to give them a lot of time for responding to self-explanation prompts uh, better to, to, to do that verbally, I think. Um, at least that's what I found. Absolutely. Okay, Michael, what I want to move on to now is, and I wonder again whether this is a big problem in the US, because it certainly is in the UK, and that is a teacher workload issue that's driven a lot by marking policies marking and feedback policies so i remember i used to spend five or six hours on a sunday afternoon marking pieces of homework writing individualized pieces of feedback that the kids would just look at dismiss or not understand not get a great deal out of it and it was all just a bit of a waste of time and it felt like i was playing some kind of game that that nobody was really benefiting from and and then i read one of your posts um on what you call whole quiz feedback and it just really resonated me i thought it was such a such a smart sensible logical idea so firstly um is 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 that a problem in the u.s this kind of workload driven by marking and and how does your approach kind of tackle this without sacrificing any any learning opportunity for the students yeah i think it's an approach it's a problem everywhere every teacher i i I imagine uh faces certainly in, in my school people if teachers are complaining about anything, it's about all the marking that they have mm. to do. And um, and interestingly, when I talk to colleagues, they all we all kind of are on the same page that uh, it doesn't lead to much learning. Yes. And and is it Michael? Is it this marking coupled with the need to write feedback? Is is that a thing in the U.S. as well? Oh oh certainly yes uh, certainly where well well right i think i think what happens is you give this feedback and then you start worrying that it's cold <laughs> and and that it's it's impossible to <laughs> make logic out of yes for the student and so you say well what maybe i'll add a smiley face next to the thing that they did right <laughs> or i'll say this was great or so close uh and things like that yeah yeah, fantastic. And, well, well, talk me through because I assume that in the early days of your teaching career, like me, you just you just went along with this, right? Like because you you didn't feel there was another choice, or did you did you look to change this from from day one? No, from day day one, I was I was trying different things. Um, there's a trend in the United States called standard based grading uh, that I was an adopter of when I started teaching. Uh, and ultimately became very dissatisfied by. It. But what? But that approach is you essentially break down your year into uh, 50, 60 skills. Right. I don't know. However many skills you think you need. And then each question is marked uh, one through five 
on how much evidence you have. So at the end of a quiz, I would mark the whole thing and then uh, try to give feedback via rubric. Yes. Uh, on every skill. Wow. Oh my gosh, I, I I ended up hating that. I really did. Uh, I really ended up not liking that. Uh, so so I was always trying to find ways to make feedback uh, to students on assessments more worthwhile. Uh, um, yeah, and and uh, uh, and uh, where I'm at now is I do this this kind of whole class thing as much as possible. Mm, well, t- tell us about this, Michael. So, so what I what I try to do is this. I, here's here's the logic to me. <laughs> the logic to me is kind of like this. We all agree that you don't learn a whole lot from getting those marks back on your page, right? Yeah. So. What do you learn from? Well, everything else you do in class, right? Mm. So let's just do that. Let's just do like it, it, whatever you would do as a learning activity. Just do that. Okay, but you already did that. So, so what I think is this. The assessment is telling you that the students in your class don't know something mm. or that they do know something. Uh, it's telling you a little bit more about what the students in your class do or do not understand. So you can usually narrow in and say, okay, I now have a more specific understanding of what I need to teach. And then whatever you do, whatever you think is effective for teaching, you just have a very specific target now. So, you know, if, 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 if simultaneous equations was something that you were taught and now you're looking at a bunch of your students work on, on simultaneous equations, you might see, oh, when there are pro- – they do fine when the problems are each y equals something, but when it's 2x plus y equals 13 and the other mm. equation is – you know, they just kind of mush them together. They yes. don't really do the substitution. So that's, uh, that's specifically what I need to teach, and that is – I'm just going to do a learning activity about that specific thing, and I'll connect that to the quizzes. I'll connect that to whatever it was that 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 they just did. And it 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 seems so it seems so sensible this Michael and I'm I'm going to play devil's advocate for for a moment here. Well what 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 do we do there then if we've we've got the quiz and you've set it to your kids and we get this simultaneous equations question and out of your 17 students um 12 of them have had a disaster on it but five of them have absolutely nailed it. And you know you know you've got to deal with the the 12 who've struggled but what uh, but if we're doing it kind of whole class what what are we doing with the five who've who've nailed this particular thing well yeah it's that's but to me that's that's a totally manageable uh situation first of all they're going to have a chance to do something new right Mm. traditionally not traditionally but the way this is frequently done is those kids would have to listen to the teacher kind of go on about explaining uh, the right way to do it on the board. So it's mm. it, so we're all, we're dealing with a world where like if you if these kids understand something, usually what they have to just put up with. And I remember this from school also is like a you know a twenty minute kind of rolling lecture about <laughs> why what was wrong was wrong. <laughs> right. Maybe maybe interspersed with some random scoldings. <laughs> like you got to pay attention to the X's, 
The X's are always what gets you. The negatives, actually, is what I should have said. You gotta watch out for those negative signs. So, so that's the world that we're dealing with. So, under this scheme, look, it might be easier for those five kids, but those five kids are gonna get a chance. And if I use example problem pairs like we were talking about mm. before, and I usually what I try to do is I write a very specific worked example with all those explanation prompts mm. and 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 the practice. Usually what happens from in my classes is that that's not a waste of time for any of my students, even if they got it right on the quiz. It's uh, 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 it's usually, you know, it's a chance to solve some problems. It's one that an average student in the class found challenging. So probably these five students also found a little bit challenging. Yes. Uh, it's not and, – and it's replacing something that is uh, – that a lot of teachers – do that is is i think far worse for the five students who uh who knew how to do it yeah i i agree there i, I mean again there's nothing we can do as teachers that that's perfect that's going to work for everybody but yeah i mean the reason i play devil's advocate with you there michael is is because that's the kind of thing that that i'd get asked and i know and i know listeners will will, will will want to ask as well if they want to try this they can, and they're being observed by senior management or whatever it is that that's the kind of question what are you doing for the kids already know how to do it and i guess the the key there is you're not just going over the exact same problem that the kids have got wrong in the quiz because there, there we've got a slight issue because you know some students have demonstrated that they knew how to do that one these are this is a, these are related problems kids are getting chance to have have further practice kids are getting chance to self-explain they're getting chance to have conversations with their peers who've been struggling so there's there's something in it for everybody would, would that be right or have i missed, I, I think have so. I missed anything I think, so. I think so and and the the other thing is if you're only limited to explaining and going over that same problem from the quiz. Mm. Uh, how are you going to do that? Uh, the, the thing that I always encountered was was kids saying, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah." I just made a, like a little thing. Yeah, yeah, I know how to do it. <laughs> yes. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't worry about it. Don't worry about the it, it was it was fine. Yeah, yeah, I'll get. It. Yeah, I can totally do it now. Um, you know that that's not true. You have something to learn, right? So so. I try not to so so part of this that I haven't told you is I'll I'll kind of hold off on returning those quizzes. Okay. I won't I'll I'll say hi class. So I looked at your quizzes, inspired by your quizzes, I, I've designed today's little learning activity to really focus in on something that I think is relevant for your quizzes. And I'll teach the thing and kids will do the thing. Maybe it's exactly what we were talking about mm. before, either a correct or an incorrect example or self-explanation questions, a chance to practice it. Then I'll say, okay, I'm going to give your quizzes back. Everybody should look at question two because most people had some trouble with question two. And what we just did is directly relevant for question two. I will have circled or X'd or whatever. I, I'll do very simple marking on the page. 100% correct gets a check. Anything that's not 100% correct gets a circle or an X. Oh, okay. This works best. This works best, just to be clear, if it's not a graded assessment. It really does work best if there's no – if I don't have to put anything in the grade book. Right. It does work best. It's true because then I – because it's a different conversation when you hand that thing back. Because mm. uh, the question is how many points did I get on this? Did I get – you know, half credit or did I get, or am I going to be really a hard person and, and, and not give any points or any credit if you have anything wrong? 
So it's a, it really is a different conversation if there's grades. So so I really do try to have as many no stakes, no graded quizzes. I really do try uh, as much as possible to do that. Uh, it does work best that way, I think. Got it. Um, but I'll hand them back at this point, and kids will see what I've marked on them, and then uh, they will revise them. I'll say, go ahead. Now that you know how to do this better, try it better, and 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 you know improve your quiz, and hand it back. And that's the end of my feedback cycle. God, and again, the the, the many advantages to that. First off, as we spoke uh, just before, workload issue. It's not a massive workload um, for you, but crucially. It's more it's more effective for the kids, right? Like they're having to do more thought. And the point I often make with this is that sometimes the more effective my feedback was, the the, the less lesser thought my kids had to put into it. So I was putting really detailed feedback, all this scaffolding, all these related problems, and so on. And it was almost so good, this feedback, that the kids, like you say, were like, oh, yeah, 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 I understand that now. That's fine. But one, it had taken me absolutely hours. And two, there was no way of knowing whether kids did understand it or not unless they were forced to try, whether it's a related problem or try that problem again from scratch without this kind of scaffolding. So for me, you're kind of addressing both of those. There's the workload issue that you're reducing, but also ramping up the effort and thought that the kids have to put into it themselves, if, if that makes sense. Yes, totally. The the other kind of feedback I've sometimes taken to calling better luck next time feedback. <laughs> oh, go on. Tell me about this. I like this. Well, it's just, it's just you know, that conversation is, so here's the problem. Uh, you can see where you made a mistake. Better luck next time. <laughs> and that's it. That's, that's, that's usually the kind of way that, that goes. The, 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 and can I ask as well? And again, forgive me for coming back to this, but again, we'll have we'll have we'll have listeners uh, uh, thinking here that again, I want to do this, but I'm going to be under pressure from I've got obligations within school to record a certain amount of data or grades or levels or whatever it is. So, so this approach from you again would would, would this be something that? that many us teachers could implement if they wanted or again are you a bit of a maverick in the sense that that you've kind of rebelled against the system and said look this is i'm doing it this way because this works i mean I, my teaching environment is a little bit weird in that i i don't feel immense amount of pressure to record a ton mm. so so that's unusual uh i wouldn't say that i'm a maverick i'd say that my school makes this easier for me yes i'd say if but i taught it at other places uh where you do have to record data like that. And uh, I, I think I could do it the same way. I think I would just delay revealing whatever grade or whatever mm. data uh, that I'm doing. So I, I think I would record this and keep that private until returning the stuff. Got it. And after this whole cycle. Got it. Fantastic. Well, um, the final big area I want to talk to you about, Michael, and this is a massive area, is, is problem solving. And the reason I've been so excited to, to talk to you about this is that I can, uh, reading some of your blog posts um, on problem solving, again, resonated with a bit of a crisis that I've been going through over the last two to three years where I've completely changed my views about problem solving. And I want to start with something that you wrote. You, you said that many problem solving strategies have descriptive but not prescriptive validity. And um, can you just talk us through what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So 
Um, Sorry for the pause. No problem. Dramatic. I like it. <laughs> no, it's uh yes. I will now reveal my thoughts on this. Uh, yeah. So here's what I mean by that. What I mean by that is, is if I, uh, uh, part of expertise is that you, uh, have developed certain mental shortcuts, right? Mm. That the, the novices don't have. So if, uh, you know, if I'm really good at, what am I? I really good at nothing. Oh, yeah. um, what am I good at? Uh, I don't know. Um, well, okay. I, I, I play music. So, uh, not well, but you know, better than people who don't know how to play sure. an instrument. And so I, I, I think, uh, you know, Oh, maybe if I'm playing this, Oh, this song, I know this, this is like the, you know, the, the kind of a doo song. Mm. I can just play those co- kind of chords. Right. Um, that means nothing to, Someone who doesn't. If you told somebody who's trying to figure out how to play a song on the radio to do the doo wop chords, yes, that that's useless information. Not because it's false. It's not. It's not untrue. Mm. But it's it's a higher. It's I can recognize that I'm doing that, but that is useless advice to give everybody. Yes. And that's kind of what I'm talking about here. What I'm talking about uh, uh, is that many of the problem solving strategies that I've seen posters made of in classrooms mm. say, or I've seen on on the internet, which is, uh, you know, uh, uh, when you're stuck on a problem, here are some things you can do. You could draw a picture. You could uh, think backwards. You could, uh, Lord, I don't know. Like sol- solve a simpler problem is one solve, that, oh, that, yeah, get, that right. gets solve me every time. Yeah, right, yeah. yeah. Solve a simpler problem. Well, okay. Two plus two is, is four. <laughs> That's simpler than, than, than whatever problem I'm doing. So it, it's not, um, it's true though that like, I don't know if you've had this experience last time you, you, you were doing some math. Very frequently, it's true that drawing a picture helps. Mm, absolutely. Or solving a simpler problem helped. Um, the issue isn't whether it's true or false in my mind. I think it's very often true that these these are correct ways of describing kind of from a higher level the, the thought process that went into something. But uh, not very useful to tell somebody to do that. And that's that's... That's what I mean by it doesn't have the prescriptive validity. It's, it's fascinating that, Michael. I, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And that this is something it's taken me. So this is my 15th year of teaching. It took me about 13 years to, to kind of come to this conclusion. I thought that you could teach these as essentially strategies, but separate from the knowledge. So you could you could teach students to become problem solvers by arming them with such strategies as solve a simpler problem and so on and so forth. Uh, essentially teaching generic problem solving skills. But it just it just didn't work. And what, what I found particularly interesting was that when I would go through a problem that kids had struggled with and I'd say, well, it'd be a good idea to draw a picture here. Again, the kids would be like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, make, that makes perfect sense but they couldn't they couldn't make that leap themselves because they right. didn't and i think it was now when i look back on it it wasn't because they were bad problem solvers it wasn't because they were lacking some problem solving skill it was that they didn't have the knowledge or the experience or the bank of related problems that i i had to know that that was a valid approach do, do, does that make sense it does though i think well yeah, I, th- I think it does. I think it does. I, I don't want to be too hard on this because I think there is a kind of more reasonable version of some of these problem-solving strategies. Go on, tell me, tell me. Yeah, well, I 
he, so I teach at a summer camp also, a wonderful math camp uh, uh, called Beam uh, here in New York. Uh, it's wonderful. It's really great. It's for talented kids who go to poor public schools here in the city. And uh, and and one way that I, I that I think about the course that I teach, it's about fractions, but it's I, I kind of think about it as the draw a picture strategy course. I kind of think about it as like it's just about fractions, and it's really just about fraction division problems, pr- problems that relate to multiplication division with mm. fractions ratios and proportions but i think of it in a way as a kind of course about drawing pictures to help you solve these types of problems but it's much more specific than draw a picture i mean i i'm not just saying draw a picture i'm showing you what kinds of pictures are useful to draw and what i'm being very explicit about what types of problems they're useful to draw yes uh so it's not that draw a picture is never it's 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 not that it's unteachable, and I, I would even go to say that while it's true that the generic problem-solving is, is, is much too – I think about it as like a bird's-eye view on mathematics uh, problem-solving is, 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 is the draw a picture, solve a simpler problem. That's such a high perspective. Mm. So many of the details are obscured from that height. But if you pick a more reasonable height, it's not that you can't teach problem-solving. It's just that you are teaching – it in a domain like you said it's connected to problems it's connected to knowledge it's not a thing apart yes but it is but it's also not the case that you're going to teach kids to be really competent and flexible uh with their skills by only teaching them specific problems and specific uh 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 like low level you don't want to be too close to the ground either yes so finding that manageable height is 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 a is a matter of art and experience uh for all i know it's a matter of research but but often not i've I've found that research isn't usually interested in that question the question of what tends to be the best height it's uh that is fascinating this michael and i'll tell you what um so over over the last couple of days in fact i've just come back today i've I've been at a fascinating conference it was the the atm ma uh 2019 easter conference there there are two big subject associations the association of teaching of mathematics and the mathematics association and there'd be a lot of people at that conference who would disagree with a lot of what i think and so on but i i attended a fascinating lecture and and i just want to and this is something i was thinking about on the drive home and I want to I want to um, ask it to you um, the, the Mike Askew um, was the guy giving the lecture and he made the point that um, if we th- if we think and I'm going to I'm going to admit I'm guilty of thinking this that problem solving can only occur well let's say reasoning instead of problem solving reasoning can only occur after kind of fluency has been attained then some students some students will never have this opportunity to be able to reason because they'll never be fluent in a particular skill that we want them to be and they'll be trapped doing these kind of low level low-level problems low-level skills and so on without having access to, to to being able to reason now that that kind of made sense to me because i thought well you can't reason without that kind of knowledge but mike showed a, a very kind of provocative example for me which was um he put on the board something along the lines of um something like i'm going to get this wrong but it was something like 45 multiplied by 36 is equal to 45 multiplied by 35 plus 
35, something like that. And he said, is that true or false? And the point he was making was that we could reason whether that was true or false without needing to be fluent in the art of, of, of multiplication. And the danger is if we kind of put all the emphasis on, on fluency, if it's always teaching the kids the skill via, as I would do it, example problem pairs and, and, and you similarly, if the emphasis is always on this fluency and we sacrifice this reasoning and this, this kind of problem solving, there's a danger that our kids never develop this ability to reason and they all always resort back to the algorithm when in actual fact it'll often kind of cost them and not be the best way to solve a particular problem and um, does any of that make sense and does that resonate with you at all well you know one one thing that tends to be controversial here is whether you can develop or teach that problem solving that reasoning ability and i that's kind of what i was saying before i don't know if that's something that uh you can teach kids to not revert back to mm. I, I don't know i i really don't it's complicated and and uh, uh what i do know is that i want kids to have the opportunity to reason yes uh for two reasons one is because i think school should be to whatever extent possible enjoyable i understand that sometimes you know there's some schools where where you make different choices about whether it's you know where you say you know we it's so important for kids to learn these skills because they will not pass the test and not have the opportunity. Mm. So we say we have to sacrifice fun. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, there are schools like that and, and I understand that argument, but, but whenever possible in any environment that I'm in, I'd like to give kids a chance to, to, to reason. Yes. Uh, because that's valuable. I value it. I value that opportunity. I think it's good to do in school. I think it's good to do with a group of people. Um, without worrying whether it's the most efficient use of time. Mm. As long as that's balanced with other things uh, and other concerns, I'm okay making that decision. So so the first thing I'd say is I don't really know if I agree that that problem-solving ability would be developed by that activity because mm. I don't know if you could develop it from that bird's-eye view. Mm. Uh, but I do know that I'd like to give kids the chance to, to reason and to solve problems uh, while balancing every other need that these kids have uh, and that society demands and that my department demands and that my school demands, you know, all the stakeholders. So that, that, that thing one. The other thing though, is that, is that, um, you know, oh, there's a lot of things. This is a positive <laughs> example. Oh, well, 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 what, from the bird's eye view, sure. I'm skeptical, but from a more reasonable height, I do believe that you can learn to problem solve and reason about multiplication uh, in a way that isn't that that doesn't depend on fluency with a particular skill. Each of those bits of reasoning uh, uh, can be developed and taught. So if your goal is to is to teach kind of a reasonable, like fluency doesn't just need to be procedural fluency. It could be fluency with moves exact like exactly like the ones that he described. That you can think of that as. You could think of the multiplication not as 45 times 36 stacked and then mm. compute it, but you could think about it uh, using uh, thinking about it in terms of groups. Yes. You know, uh, f uh, you've got f uh, 45 teams of 35 or yes. whatever yes. the numbers you were, and then you have one more. So that's a way of thinking that can be taught. Uh, uh, right? You could teach kids, and I do this in my younger classes. I try to. You can teach kids. Uh, a lot of modes of reasoning 
that are kind of like mini problem solving strategies, problem solving strategies, but specific ones. Yes. Specific yes. Content. But the final thing I'll say is that there's a reciprocal relationship between uh, fluency and opportunities for reasoning, right? It once my, so, so that 45, 46 times 35 plus mm. 35. If I, uh, that's an opportunity for reasoning until I teach my kids to think about problems like that, that they can think about problems like that by turning, by thinking about, by turning that into a multiplication problem. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes, I do. So, yes. So reasoning happens in the absences of fluency by definition. Wow. That's, and, yeah, that, I've never thought of it like that. But that, but that means that there's always opportunities at every level, uh, to reason. It's not right. Right. That means that it doesn't matter how much you know. Or how little you know. Reasoning can happen if you're just on the edge of what you could do, even though you are not don't have any fluent way to do it. Everybody has things they can do, even though they're not fluent in them. So, you know, of, of course there's opportunities for reasoning, and of course that depends on prior knowledge. But everybody has prior knowledge. Mm. There's always I, so so. I mean, I tend to agree. I guess in short that that it's good whenever possible to give kids a chance to reason uh, as long as that's balanced with all the other needs. And I don't think that it's impossible to do that unless it's on a bedrock of fluency. And I agree also with the speaker who says that, uh, that, that it's not true that you need fluency in order to reason because not knowing some things while knowing others is precisely what it takes to reason. What on the other hand, though, it's it is true that there are some problems that to reason productively about them, you would need fluency. And, and that's also true. So you're right. Also, you're all right. Everybody's <laughs> right. Everybody's correct. <laughs> oh, fantastic answer, that, Michael. That was superb. Um, I, I want to want to just uh, end with a few reflections from you, if, if that's all right, uh, Michael. Totally. So my first yeah. question is, um, I wonder, and this may be an impossible question, but is there is there a particular either piece of research or a book that you would pick out that has significantly influenced your thinking or your approach to teaching? Well, you know, I, 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 I tend to piece things together here and there. So I, I've mentioned doing a deep dive of cognitive load mm. theory. I, I mentioned uh, the algebra by example stuff. I mentioned uh, Geometry Labs by Henry Pichotto, which is free on online, which which is just playful and wonderful. Um, I would add that that one thing that we didn't talk about, but it actually did influence me quite a bit, especially early on, uh, is uh, a body of mathematical education research that is beloved by progressives, um, which is especially for the younger kids, which is cognitively guided instruction, CGI. And um, I think that's a beautiful thing. I, I still think it's a beautiful body of research. What it basically did is, uh, and and even if uh, some of the progressive, I don't know, uh, uh, ideas from it no longer resonate with me as much, the core does, which is that you can systematically understand how kids pick strategies um, for addition and subtraction word problems. So you give kids, you know, two different word problems they're both come down to five plus seven mm. you could have an understanding of which strategy young kids will use and and what really influenced me about that was was how nitty-gritty how specific it is how how it's it's 
it's it's a theory, but within a very limited domain. It's about addition and subtraction word problems, and uh, that's something that that I love and that has influenced me. Uh, the idea that that there's a right level. That's fascinating. Well, could you just give us the name of that one more time, Michael? Yeah, CGI, cognitively guided instruction. A guy named Tom Carpenter did That's... a lot of that of, of that research with a, a bunch of other people who, uh, sadly, uh, uh, including uh, a p- bunch of people whose names I'm worried that I'll mispronounce. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but a bunch of uh, I don't mean to give credit to just Tom Carpenter, who's uh, the man that I can remember, there's a bunch of uh, like, amazing female researchers who are part of that team too. Got it. Fantastic. I'll definitely be looking that up. That sounds Thank superb. Um, second question on your reflections, Michael, is there an example of anything important that you've changed your mind about? Well, you know, the, the one that, that we talked about earlier is one worth mentioning again, which is uh, worked example research is something that has been kind of a wonderful gift uh, provocative gift for me that helped me rethink just a lot of aspects of my teaching um and i I think that's a big one uh it's i i'm i see myself as kind of a scrapping things together uh to try to balance competing needs sort of person sort of teacher uh trying to find good compromises and it was so refreshing when i looked at the worked example research to see that that kind of fit in there to me. It, it 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 wasn't saying you should just you know it's sometimes vilified the worked example research as being just oh so you're saying that you should just explain things all the time and <laughs> you should just like lecture is best. No, that's not what it says. That's not what it says. It says something totally reasonable, something that doesn't need to be controversial, which is there's a better way to explain things and to help kids understand new ideas and new models so uh, that was very influential to me brilliant fantastic and um, is there anything that you do that makes your job a little bit easier yes yes <laughs> yes there are many things but one that i want to mention now is homework uh i've started you can't use this in the uk so i'm sorry <laughs> uh, uh there must be things like this and if not, someone should just start developing it right now. <laughs> I use uh, uh, a beautiful website called Delta Math uh, for homework in my algebra classes. And it is so simple. And like it's I, I think I offended the creator once. Uh, <laughs> he's another New York City teacher. He's an amazing person. By saying it's like stupidly simple or something like that. <laughs> I meant no offense there. But what I mean is so much of the of the technology is so complicated. It's, it promises that it's going to learn what your students understand and what they don't and provide complicated feedback to them and to you and recommend videos and so on. This is not that. It's so simple. Here's how it works. There's a bank of problems uh, with, you know, uh, with variables, you know, the, the, the numbers can change is what I'm saying. Mm, yes. So, and you pick a skill like solving for, uh, you know, solving for, uh, for a variable in an yep. equation or simultaneous equations. And, uh, uh, then you assign it and kids do it and they have to do five of them correct. And that can be their homework. And, uh, that's amazing. That's amazing. It's amazing. I, it's, it's such an easy way to assign and receive homework it's just a beautiful thing 
And it's Delta Math, but that's limited. You've got to be in the U.S., have you, to, to access this? Well, you don't have to be in the U.S., but it's all kind of organized in, in a U.S.-centric oh, way. You know, so it's Algebra 1, Geometry, Algebra 2. That, that, you know, it's organized that way. I think if you were committed to it, but, but more broadly, does anything like that exist in the U.K.? Like, <laughs> like a homework supply system that's free? Yeah, well, it's really interesting you should say that. There's a, there's a bit of, well, funny, I'll give you a bit of an insight here, Michael. There's a bit of a kind of a, a war, not a war is a strong way of saying it, but there's there's two kind of competing... We won that war. <laughs> we won that war. <laughs> well, there's there's two kind of big platforms. And the, and again, you feel free to check these out, and particularly if you've got, if, if listeners in the US are tuning into this. So we've, there's a kind of paid for one, which is called Hegarty Maths, which has been set up by kind of a really influential um, maths teacher Colin Hegarty which is a similar thing you've got well it's but it's also got videos attached so if you struggle on a particular problem there's a video with it with a worked example going through it and you can try related problems and so on and so forth but then there's a, a rival been set up which is called Dr Frost Maths and that's completely free and it aims to do the exact same thing well close to a similar thing that, that Hegarty Maths does and it's really interesting at the moment because with, with school budgets that are tight obviously if somebody's offering you a free platform that does something very similar to a premium one what is it that's going to keep you in this premium one well the premium one does this this and this better and so on and so forth so that's um that that will be just having not seen delta math that would possibly be our equivalence if that makes sense yeah that makes sense i i think my point is just like i, I feel like this technology is is ready in the mm. sense that it's an improvement over doing homework by yourself and not yes. knowing how to do something I think so. And there's something about that immediate feedback as opposed to waiting five days for me, the lazy, right. the teacher to market and give me your back right. and so on and so forth. Absolutely. Right. It's not, it's, it's not perfect, but then again, yes. these are not in class. Exactly so right. Exactly right. The bar is low. Exactly. Fantastic. And final question for you, Michael, uh, before I hand over to you for your big three, is um, what do you wish you'd known when you first started teaching that you know? That's now? an impossible question. You know that. You know that's an impossible question. <laughs> give, me one, give me something. Give me one thing. Give me one thing. One thing. Well, I, okay, earlier, uh, oh, man. I, I did say earlier that I wish I had known uh, how important it is to deepen the relationships within the school. Yes. Uh, and, and it's – and, and and not just in, in kind of like, oh, you know, because people are nice and it's nice when people are nice and you're American and I get it. <laughs> you're so, like everyone's so obsessed about being nice. First of all, I'm from New York. People are not nice here. Back off. But second of all, uh, uh, what I didn't realize was, first of all, classroom management just gets much easier the more people trust and know you. Mm, I think that's yes. true. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh your word carries authority just because they know who you are. They know you're not going anywhere. Uh, you've taught their brother. Mm. You've taught their sister. Uh, you know, you see the parents outside the school yes. and you say hi. Uh, uh, you know who to talk to if a kid's having trouble. You know quiet ways of picking up information. You know what colleagues in English are doing. You know uh, when the big term paper is. Well, you know, all sorts of little teeny things that we don't think of as excellence in teaching, but knowledge of your environment. I, I wish I had known because I think I would have done a better job. I think the first place I taught, in many ways, I do think it was a, a tough place to work um, in a way that a lot of schools are tough to work. Not uh, 
uh, at a basic level, classroom behavior was not good, and it was not a safe place for kids or for teachers to teach. Mm. That that said, I think that I was I reacted in a way that was sometimes adversarial to the environment. That I was going to kind of like buck everybody because I was going to find a way to do this better. And I think that if I had deepened some of the relationships, I mean, I wasn't willing to put in the time. I really did. After three years, I was I was ready to say goodbye. I feel like I'd proven to myself that I could do whatever I could do there, and it was time to try something else. I didn't feel like I was walking away before I had accomplished what I needed to accomplish to to convince myself that I'd given it a fair shot. Mm. But uh, uh. Also, who cares? What did I pro- who cares what I proved to anybody? I wish I could tell that to myself also. Just find a job that you like, Michael. You're no hero. Just get a job that you enjoy. It doesn't stress out your wife. Um, but, but, but I, I, you know, but it, it, that's something that I, I could only understand when I, when there was a place that I was willing to stick around for, for longer than three years. Yes. So. Fantastic. That's it. I tell you what, that's a great answer to an impossible question, Michael. I like that. Thank you. <laughs> right, it's time for me to shut up and hand over to you for your big three. So what three either websites or blog posts would you like to direct our listeners to? And I'll put links to these in the podcast show notes. Well, I, I've resisted the urge to share anything that I wrote myself. <laughs> so... So um, there'll be a link to your blog. Don't you worry about that. Um, and I'll, oh, I'll, you don't I'll, have to do and that. And what I might do, I might even pick out, say, three of my favorite posts, and that'll be an impossible, oh, impossible job. Kind, and I'll do you're that. Too kind, but a <laughs> okay. So um, algebra by example. I here's what I think. I, I'm putting it on the list because it's one thing to advocate for research, and it's another thing to do what this site does, what I think you do very well, which is kind of enshrine the research in specific curricular materials. Mm. I think that teachers, we teachers, we swap materials. Yes. That's the basic currency of our profession. Yes. We yeah. swap materials, we swap activities, we share those that's the fundamental unit of sharing and teaching. And so uh and so uh this is this is I've never the worked example literature did not make sense to me until I saw this. So I'm putting it on the list. It's a great one. And again, I, I discovered it whilst I was researching for my book and I, I couldn't I couldn't believe it existed. And I couldn't believe I'd not seen it before, if that makes sense. I, I, I couldn't believe this wasn't more widely shared, particularly over here in the UK. And um, no teacher I'd spoken yeah. to had ever seen it. And it's just it's it's just a wealth of yeah practical stuff you can use in the lesson backed by research. And it's just yeah, I, I, it was a game changer for me. So thank you for yeah for flagging that up. It's a great choice. I mean, I, I I see it as a challenge to to anybody who wants to advocate for for worked examples and any other level of math, uh, which is there's no reason why we teachers can't make a research uh, resource like this ourselves. Mm. There, there, there's no reason why not to. This is this is easy. If we think that the research matters, the materials that are inspired by the research, I think, matter just as much. So yes. things like this should exist, um, though. Algebra, by example, was made by researchers in the U.S. who worked with a district, with worked with schools and practitioners. So it's kind of an interesting model of research, too, that, that led to its creation. Uh, like researchers and practitioners sort of working more collaboratively than they often are. Got it. Got it. Okay, number two. Yeah, go for it. Okay, so number two. The the new visions I, – I, I, earlier I mentioned the new visions math curriculum as being something that I kind of like. Uh, what they have is they have uh, 
a curriculum, and you know, there's a lot of curriculum, curricular materials out there. What I really like is their um, two types of, uh, of of activities that they have: connecting representations, activities, and uh, 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 what's the other one called? Shoot, well, there's another one. <laughs> uh, they, they've got uh, 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 a couple kind of activities mm. uh the first one connecting representations is kind of a matching thing with the same uh mathematical object or idea represented in two different ways so you're getting practice at at moving between different representations nice. which i love yes me too um and the other one is uh i forget what it's called but but it's like essentially mental math uh Context and problems, and I found those really useful, especially for uh, uh, just a model for like one what kind of activity, one kind of activity that we can do in class. So that's number two. It's a great one, and again, what I like about this is, I mean, all three of these. I mean, I've had maybe what seventy guests on this podcast, so the the same things kind of come up and time and time again in the big three. These are brand new, these Michael. So no, there'll be many teachers in the UK who will not be aware of any of these. And I, I when you sent these through, in particular, I was having to play around with with number two and and the one that you're about to say here. And again, I, I was I'm, I'm hooked in. It's kind of my Easter weekend is is sore. <laughs> now. I've got to break it to my wife and my newborn uh, son, but yeah, I'm going to be playing around with this. It's uh, <laughs> it's fascinating stuff. So yeah, what, what about number three? Okay, number three. There's a group in America called the Art of Problem Solving, which is all about uh, the, the kind of upper end of mathematical training and achievement. So it's trying to open up resources uh, for for students who are ready for more mathematically, and uh, so they have this this site. They call it a game, and I guess you could call it a game, but it's not really a game. Uh, uh, it's really just, well, it's called Alchemist, hmm. and it's impossible to pronounce. Alchemist, it's, it's <laughs> A-L-C-U-M-U-S, yep. and it's free. And here's what you do. You go there, you sign up, uh, you select whatever area you'd like to have mathematical problems in, served to you in, and uh, or you could pick no such area and just get them from wherever. And one by one, they just give you interesting problems. Uh, they're, they're, that sounds like less than it is. What makes it beautiful to me is its simplicity and the quality of the problems. So I've lost hours uh, just, you know, trying the things that, that are served up to me by, by, by this kind of slightly gamey problem-solving site. And uh, whenever I find myself kind of feeling blah or dreary about uh, some school-related topic – I can I know I can go on there and, and select that topic and get a really interesting problem uh, before too long that kind of might not directly influence my teaching, mm. though sometimes I pull problems and give them to students, but really just as fun and uh, gets me excited about the content again. Fantastic. Well, they are an excellent choice of a big three, those, Michael. And as I say, there'll be links to those in the show notes and links to a lot of the other things that, that we've discussed. So all that remains for me to do, Michael, is, is to thank you. And I want to thank you for, for first off, for giving up your time to, to speak to us, particularly so close to Easter. And we've we've chatted for, whoa, nearly, well, two and a half, coming up to, to nearly three hours now. And I, I've loved every second of it. So thank yeah, you. Me for, too, me too. Thank you for that. And also just thank you for the work you do in terms of your blog posts and, and the things you send out 
on Twitter. Um, you're one of my go-to kind of favorite bloggers because I, I know I'm going to learn something. And I also, I know I'm going to be challenged. I know I'm going to have to, to, to think hard. And this has n- never been truer than it is following this conversation. So I've been, I've been jotting down things I need to think about in order to put together my takeaways. And again, the, the list is getting longer and longer and longer. So <laughs> as I say, th- thank you for your time and thank you for all the work you do, Michael. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. A pleasure. Uh, on my end as well. Thank you so much for hosting this and for all the resources that you've made and share and all the work that you do. So thank you. So there you have it. There was my interview with US teacher and blogger Michael Pershing. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. Um, I'm always nervous when I interview a guest that I've never met face to face or indeed never spoken to before in my life. Um, And that was the case with Michael. You never know how it's going to go. But what a guy Michael is. I absolutely loved speaking to him. I could have spoken to him all day. And well, (laughs) we pretty much did with the length of that conversation. And I'm so grateful for him for giving up his time. Um, And I'm also grateful for him, I think anyway, for getting my head into the state it's in at the moment, which is spinning around left, right and centre, primarily about worked examples. But we'll come to that um, in a couple of minutes, because there are a few other things that I'd like to to reflect on in this takeaway from from this conversation. Um, The first is what we spoke about at the start, about about the importance or um, the benefits, perhaps, of staying in one school. And and this is something I've I've certainly discovered myself. Um, In one of the first ever podcast interviews I did with with Mel Muldowney uh, from Just Math fame we spoke about um changing schools and how it's the kind of thing that nobody nobody seems to speak about how hard it is everybody chats about how hard teaching is and going to your first school but nobody speaks about the 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 difficulty of the transition whenever you've been teaching for five or six years you you think you've got a bit of an idea what's going on and then you shift to a new environment and it potentially in my case anyway it all goes to pot and it's tricky because there's advantages of moving school. And I've been having this conversation with um, my uh, a teacher I mentor, Colin, who, um, God, he's in his, wow, he must be in his sixth or seventh year of, of teaching now. And he was my NQT um, when I first moved to, to my school in Bolton. And Colm's got to the stage now, he's risen to head of department, but he's, he's been in the same school for, for six or seven years. And we've been having a chat over the last couple of years about whether it's time for him to, to move. And, and the benefits are, of course, of moving. You get a different challenge. You get to start afresh. If you're moving in as head of department, you get a, essentially a blank slate where you can bring in your ideas um, and it's new set of challenges and so on and so forth. But the downsides are it's going to be flipping hard. And particularly if you're going in in a position of responsibility, you've got all that challenge coupled with the fact that at least in the initial stages, and for me this took many months, your lessons are probably not going to be as effective as they used to be. Your teaching's not going to be as effective as it used to be. And this boils down to the other thing that Michael was talking about, and that's the expectations of students. And this isn't something I've particularly considered before, but he's absolutely bang on here. They play such an important role in the success of lessons and in ultimately the success of, of, of how much um, students learn and how well we can teach those students. Because if, if students are expecting to learn 
and expecting to work hard and expecting to focus and, and trust you and expect that you're going to deliver them a, a good lesson, a good teaching, a good learning experience, then you're on to a winner. But if you're a new member of staff, God almighty, I found this when I, when I changed school, I had no idea what my students' expectations were. And indeed, they were well out of line with what I was trying to deliver. They expected me not to stick around. They expected me not to care. They expected me to, you know, try for a few lessons and then move on like a, like a few of their other teachers had done in the past. And that made it hard when there's this contrast between the teacher's perception of students' expectations and, and the students' expectations themselves. And I don't know what the solution is to this. Um, again, I don't know whether it's worth doing some kind of exercise before you start teaching a class, perhaps at the start of the year, or if you move school, just to get a sense of of what their perception of maths is, what their expectations are. And perhaps that's a useful um, means of spending a bit of precious curriculum time just to try and get those expectations and the teacher's perceptions of them realigned a bit better. I don't know. So, so that's something I'm, I'm mulling on and that, I'm mulling over, sorry. And that's just for starters. And the second thing I wanted to talk about here is, is atomization. Now, um, I always love hearing teachers, um, how they plan lessons. And it was fascinating hearing Michael describe a lesson on subtraction. And subtraction is it's a great one to, to think about because like many topics in maths, it's something that students will have had vast experience of. Um, but we've we've all taught students, whether they're year 10s, year 11s, year 9s, whoever they are, who struggle with these basics, and yet they've they've been taught them seven, eight, nine years running. And that that's a whole new challenge I find. I describe this in my book as the most difficult part of teaching. Whenever you try and teach something to students that they've got prior experience of. Because some kids will go in there thinking, uh, let's take subtraction for an example. I hate subtraction. I've never understood it. Why am I going to get it this time round? Then you've got groups of kids who'll be thinking, oh, this is easy. Too easy for me, this, sir. I'm not going to bother putting effort into this. And yet they need to put the effort in. And then you've got students who actually do find it comfortable. And, and they tend to be in the, sometimes in the same class as the people who struggle with it. And that makes differentiation and um, even more important and even more potentially problematic and it's an absolute nightmare but the thing I wanted to reflect on here is that if we're going to atomize um, and again this is a loaded term these days but I'm just when I refer to atomization I just mean taking a complex process or procedure and breaking it down into its individual skills or atoms of knowledge if we're going to do something like that for something like subtraction or something like factors or multiples or solving equations whatever it is then it perhaps means that the atomization needs to feel different for students. Because if you're a kid who's experienced this before and struggled, then are you going to be willing to put the effort in if it looks exactly the same as it always has done? And if you're a kid who thinks you've nailed it, but you're kind of deluding yourself, and this practice looks exactly the same as it always had, you're probably going to think, well, I nailed this last time. Why am I going to bother? So this, this atomization, this practice of these routine specific skills needs to feel different. And Michael described um, when he does his lessons on subtraction, how, again, it's more of a discussion-based thing. It's, it's more of a perhaps problem-solving based thing than, than a kind of drill and thrill or drill and kill, however you want to describe it, whatever your perspective is. Um, so that's something that I'm definitely, definitely considering. And... I've, I've looked at this in, in um, 
the sense of purposeful practice. And again, I talk about this in, in my book and in, in the talks I've been doing over the last year, where making that practice feel different and yet still ensuring students are focusing and getting practice on the key process or, or procedure. Because it's all well and good that practice feeling different, but if they're not actually practicing what they need to practice, then it's potentially a bit of a waste of time. So it's it's a really tricky thing, this, but I liked what Michael said there, that practice, that practice feeling different from what students have experienced in the past, and yet still making sure that it's directly relevant to what they need to be focusing on. Flipping out teaching, it's a tricky old business. And um, next thing, I'm, not, I'm only just getting warmed up on the takeaways from this conversation, and um, problem solving. Now, whenever I first read uh, one of Michael's blogs on problem solving, when, when he described the fact that he thought many of these problem solving strategies had descriptive but not prescriptive value, I thought, finally, this, this is a kind of kindred spirit here, because this is something I'd written about in my book, and I couldn't find much support for this. Whenever I was doing teacher training, it was all about polyers, problem-solving strategies. Whenever I'm in, uh, when I when I go to training um, on problem-solving or whenever I'm lucky enough to visit other classrooms, you tend to find these problem-solving strategies on posters on the wall. And the more I thought about them, I, I mean, I always took them for granted. But over these last three to four years when I was researching the book and I was looking into problem-solving, again... Uh, I mean, this is going to sound harsh, but I, I reached the conclusion that for, for many students, they're as good as useless. I mean, telling students to solve a simpler problem. Well, if, if they could, if to solve a simpler problem, you've got to understand at quite a deep level, the, the kind of deep structure and the complexity of the problem you're trying to solve. And draw a diagram, even draw a diagram. It's a useful thing, but it requires an intimate amount of domain-specific knowledge to be able to draw the relevant diagram. And for me, these strategies always felt like labels, for want of a better phrase, that I attached to the strategies that I'd used or, or students had used after they'd solved the problem, as opposed to giving them a list of strategies that they could try to solve the problem. And I'm not saying they're not useful at all, and I'm not saying that this categorization process of, of reflecting back on the way you've solved the problem, saying, well, I solved that using this technique, which was the similar to how I solved this other problem. That, for me, is a useful process because this helps us build up connected banks of problems in long-term memory, as opposed to just kind of random ones sporadically spread out. But in terms of saying to kids, here's a list of strategies, go ahead and try these to solve this problem. One, unless students' domain-specific knowledge is strong, I don't think it's going to be that useful. And two, I've been surprised in the past just how difficult students find to apply those problem-solving strategies in this kind of forward-thinking way. Whereas for me, it's felt a more useful activity retrospectively looking back at how we've approached the problem and then assigning a name to the strategies and drawing the connections that way. I know there'll be loads of teachers listening to this thinking, you are talking absolute nonsense, Barton. But I just thought I'd throw that into the mix because Michael got me thinking about that as well. A um, couple of others before we get to the big one. What about that quote that Michael said? Reasoning happens in the absence of fluency. I love that. I love that. But what do I do with that? 
because it, I mean it's true right like if if you if you're on autopilot which for me sometimes fluency is and Mark McCourt has a good way of, of, of defining fluency it's when you can kind of solve a problem or carry out a calculation without having to direct attention to it or working memory capacity to it if you can just breeze your way through problems and questions you don't need to reason but whenever you hit that wall whenever you're you've got nothing in the bank to help you with this, you've got no toolkit to help you, that's when you need to reason. So I love that distinction, reasoning happens in the absence of fluency. But what's the implication? Is the implication we purposely don't allow our students to get to the point where they reach fluency so that they can reason? Because that doesn't feel right to me. That, that, that feels like it's this frustrating experience I used to have many times in my lessons where I give students problems to solve and they didn't have the toolkit ready to solve them. And they couldn't reason their way out of it a lot of the time because they, they simply didn't have the knowledge. They didn't have the skills and the strategies to use. So for me, I, I think I still would teach the fluency first in the vast majority of times. But just give students the kind of problems where immediately it's not obvious which, which strategy they need to use, which strategy that they're fluent at that they need to use. And this is similar to my SSDD problems approach, where students are confronted with a problem, or actually in SSDD terms, four problems, all of which look similar. And they can't dive into fluency straight away because there's that, that, that moment where they're thinking, what the flipping X this problem about? And that for me is where, where the reasoning kicks in. What, what are the similarities? What are the differences? What are the key words? How does this look like something I've approached before? How did I solve that? How's this different to what I've done before? How's this different to the problem that's next to it that looks very similar? That for me is where the reasoning happens. But I don't think students can do that reasoning or they can't do it as well if they don't have the fluency underpinning it. And then of course, once they have reasoned and figured out what the problem's about, if they can't then go ahead and solve it, then all it's a, it's a little bit of a waste of time. So I love that reasoning happens in the absence of fluency. But I want to be careful because the danger for me there is I take that and think my students will only be able to reason if they're not fluent and I'm not sure that's true. So again, something, something else I've got to be thinking about over the next few weeks and months. And then let's talk about worked examples. So first one, um, again, this is, I, I, I say this, it's, it's probably obvious to everybody listening, but this is more of a word of warning to me, so I remember this. Um, if I'm going to include mistakes in worked examples, I'm only going to start doing that once I've taught the correct way of doing it. Um, in the past, I think I've been guilty of confronting students with mistakes and misconceptions before they were ready for them, before they had anything to compare them with. And I think there's a danger there and research into cognitive conflict backs this up, that if students aren't relatively secure in their knowledge and you start presenting them with, with incorrect ways of doing things, then they're almost just as likely to assimilate that way as they are the correct way, which is, which is dangerous. So mistakes are so important because students only, for me, only fully understand how to do something when they can contrast it with how not to do something, but that how not to do it's got to come later. And that leads on to just one other quick thing I want to say before the big one and that's um, <laughs> people will know who've heard me speak recently well no I'm on a bit of a mission to to ban uh, certain displays in maths classrooms or quite a few displays in maths classrooms actually for their distracting nature and also for their negative impact that they have on students memory and um, but one type of poster that I see a lot and I'm I'm, I'm start I think I'm going to want to ban this soon as as well is these classic mistake posters you, do you know these ones do you know the ones I mean where they'll say things 
things like they'll say three to the power of two equals six and sure they'll put a cross through it or they'll say like um i'm just thinking of powers off the top of my head two to the power of zero equals zero and, and things like this but they'll, they'll be on all kinds of things like mistakes with rearranging and oh here's another one you'll get things like this uh y equals three x plus two gradient equals three x things like this classic misconceptions people as uh, students make and these are on posters um, all around the room well, for me, it's a similar kind of thing with the uh, with the worked examples and leaving mistakes till last. My fear with those is that if students don't have sound knowledge of the right way of doing things, they're just as likely to look at those things, look at those examples, and think, "Ah, oh, maybe that's the right way to do it." Or imagine they're in the exam and they're confronted with this equation of a straight line, and and they think, "Well, what's the gradient?" Then all of a sudden, oh wait a minute, I saw a poster on that. The gradient's three x. Well, that's when we're going to start getting into trouble. So I've, I have a few problems with those those um, kind of classic mistake style posters. Anyway, that's just something else I'm, I'm thinking about. Anyway, the big one, worked examples. Now, it's annoying this because like I've had to change my entire outlook and my entire approach to teaching once already when I had my mid-career crisis that led to my How I Wish I Taught Maths book. Don't tell me I have to start doing this again because worked examples, I was finally happy with them. I have my five-stage process to worked examples. So first, I split my board into two with the example problem pair approach. That's the same as same as Michael. Then I do silent teacher first, step by step, going through each each stage of the worked example. Students are watching, they're reflecting, they're self-explaining. Then I annotate and narrate. So I start asking rhetor uh, rhetorical questions. Where did that two x come from? Why did I divide there? I pause, give students time to reflect, to self-explain, and then I verbalize the answer and write it down. Then I get students to copy that worked example into their book in silence. So again, they have a third opportunity to reflect line by line as they're copying it down. Then stage four of my process, my students have a go at a related problem, the your turn bit. And then stage five, we do show call, the Doug Lemov technique for getting students work in front of the rest of the class in an efficient way that allows us to focus on misconceptions and also showcase excellence. Now, I'm dead happy with that. But then Michael comes along and how does he do his worked examples? Well, he gives them out to his students complete and they study them. Now, this is fascinating, this, because those of you who've read my book, still available in all good and all evil bookstores, um, will know that I, I reference the algebra by example work that Michael talks about that he included in his big three. And it's fascinating, this, because all the work on worked examples, sorry, uh, I should say most of the research on worked examples is based around how Michael does it. It's based around students studying completed worked examples. This is all the cognitive load theory research or Sweller's research is based on students studying completed problems as, a, as opposed to trying to solve independent problems, um, sorry, problems independently um, on their own. But it just seemed natural to me to, to kind of take this and, and instead of presenting full worked examples, to do it kind of step by step going through it. And I like it because I can use, you know, the one of my, the major takeaways from cognitive load theory for me, which is the split attention effect, which says that if students have to split their attention across different modes of presentation, then they're going to find it harder to process it. So in the past, whereas in the past, I would be writing on the board, I'd be speaking and probably my kids would be copying things down as well. That was really problematic when I look back at it now whereas now I split that so I have I go through it in silence first then I do the narration and then students copy it down but 
Michael's, I mean, Michael's way of doing things, it makes sense. It for a star, I mean, and we shouldn't we shouldn't overlook the usefulness of this. It's quick. It's quicker than my way. I mean, I don't think my way takes long. You're looking at about two minutes tops to do Silent Teacher, two minutes tops to do the narration and annotation, and probably two minutes to do the copying into books. But that's still six minutes. Whereas you can get students studying a complete worked example and then doing the, the kind of middle column bit, and I talk about this in my book as well, supercharged worked examples, this reflecting, this, this where did that 2x come from? Why did you divide by that? Students can be doing this at their own pace, in silence, and it may only save you three or four minutes, but three or four minutes over the course of a lesson, over the course of a term, over the course of a year, over the course of a, a kid's high school career, that's a lot of minutes. And as Dylan Willie always says, every decision a teacher makes has an opportunity cost because it's, it's time that could be spent doing something else. So I'm going to need to think hard about this because I think for me, the advantage of, of Silent Teacher and the way I do it is I can be really careful at directing my students' attention to the critical parts of the, of the process of solving the worked example. So I can pause, I can deliberately point to a key part of the method, I can turn to face my students, I can that can be their prompt to ask themselves, what has he just done? What's he gonna do now? So I can be really deliberate at the pacing I go through it and where I draw their attention. I can also then be really deliberate with the questions I ask my students, the, the prompts I give my students when I do the narration and annotation phase. And for me, it seems to be working. Like, I'm really happy with it. I'm, I'm getting through more. My students seem to re be retaining more. We're getting onto the problem-solving aspects quicker. But I can't discount this. I, I mean, I can't discount Michael's approach for, for a number of reasons. One, it seems quicker. Two, this is what all the research is, is based around. And three, I, I have massive respect for Michael. And he's, again, if, if, if just like I would for, for anybody who I respected, if they're trying something, it seems to be working for them. I would be a fool not to try it. So I'm going to experiment with this. I'm going to experiment with it. And it, it's not, it doesn't mean I have to exclusively move to this. It could be a combination. Perhaps the first time I do a worked example on something, I can do my five-stage process. But then when I do the next worked example, perhaps it's a little kind of moving it on a little bit. Perhaps it's, uh, I mean, an example would be perhaps the one I do where I take full control of it, over it is adding fractions with different denominators. And then perhaps when I give my students the next worked example, after we've done the your turn part, where perhaps I include some mixed number fractions or some improper fractions or, or some algebra in there, perhaps that's the one I can do where I hand them out a completed worked example and I do it the way Michael describes. Perhaps that's that's the the, the optimum. But anyway, I'm not going to dismiss it. I'm going to certainly try this. And But flipping out. I wish, I wish these guests had stopped coming on and giving me new ideas. Just when I think I'm happy, another bombshell goes off. But I'd be fascinated to know what you think of this, particularly if you've tried my approach to worked examples, the example problem pair approach, the way I do it. Would you consider trying Michael's way of doing it? Well, what, what do you think of the pros? What are the cons? And, and how does it go down when you try it with your kids? Anyway, flipping out, there's a danger this takeaway will be longer than the interview itself, so I best shut up there. Um, just a few thank yous before um, I wrap things up. Obviously, a massive thank you to Michael for sharing his time. It was absolutely brilliant to speak to him. I learned loads. He's, um, please check out his blogs follow him on twitter there's links to all those in the show notes because like me you'll just you'll just learn so much 
Massive thank you to podcastthemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And finally, a big, 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 big thank you to you, my lovely loyal listeners, for keeping on tuning into these. Uh, we nearly had 100 episodes. Can you believe that? And seeing as each one's about nine hours long, that's that's a fair bit of, uh, of CPD. And again, it makes me so happy that the teachers all around the world are listening to this, listening on the move, listening whilst they're cutting the grass, walking the dog, driving to school, washing the dishes. And that, that's why I do this. I do this because I enjoy them um, and I hopefully um, I do these so people will learn in the way that I'm learning from all my wonderful guests. Um, if you want to support the podcast, the, the easiest way to do it um, is just spread the word and tell people about it. Perhaps recommend um, your favourite episode to get somebody started on the show and leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. Again, that just helps widen the audience for this. And if you did want to make a contribution and support the show, there's no pressure to do this whatsoever. But patreon.com forward slash Mr. Barton Matthews you can buy me a mellow bird a month if you want to final plug check out my other podcast series that i'm doing at the moment inside exams where i go behind the scenes of an awarding body uh, you can get that wherever you get your podcast from anyway whew, there are some incredible guests just like michael that i've got coming up over the next few weeks and months i'm so 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 excited about them but for now whew, i think i need a drink of mellow birds actually my throat is burning up with all this this takeaway and my head is spinning so thanks so much for listening you take care of yourselves bye for now